there's a good three or four minutes before we get started. Good morning. Oh, and welcome to our annual Sagebrush Vendor Training Enjoy. Conference. We've got a fantastic agenda laid out, um, and I'm sure we're all going to take something away as we're all here to, to learn, relearn, and unlearn. And uh, just a wonderful opportunity that we all get together and visit, network and chat with each other and learn from each other's trials and tribulations. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. If you have your cell phone, please turn it on silent. Uh, and uh, if you have to have a conversation, step outside, and you know, you're always welcome to come back in. At noon today, we will be uh, hosting our SLA working um, pizza luncheon up in the RSV, RSVA suite. So if we can have all the SLA uh, staff, the directors and managers, uh, meet outside the door here um, by the volunteer table just across from the uh, registration table uh, prior to 12 o'clock and uh, Issa Scott's wife will escort you to the elevator because it's, it's a secured elevator and take you up to the suite and uh, enjoy some pizza and, uh, and with the SLA people and all in attendance and be able to compare notes as to what's all transpiring that we can learn from each other. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Scott Egan from Minnesota. He's our uh, convention committee chair, and he's going to roster us through the rest of the day. Good morning. Well, that was pretty good for our first try. That was pretty good. Delicious breakfast. We're all sitting back, feeling pretty good. Let's try this one more time. Good morning. There we go. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 2020 version of the Sagebrush Conference. We're thrilled to have you here. We have a great agenda today. So uh, I'll be your cruise director this morning. So uh, I'll be here to kind of facilitate, moderate what's going on, and bring up uh, our, our guests and that kind of thing. So um, looking forward to a good morning with you folks. And I'd uh, like to start out by sharing a few things with you. Um, I happen to have a little story to share. Uh, this man put a coin in a vending machine and, and was waiting uh, helplessly while, um, oh, I'm sorry, he was buying a cup of coffee in a vending machine, and he's standing there waiting helplessly while he watched uh, no cup appear. Uh, one nozzle sent coffee down the drain while another poured cream after it. Now that's real automation, he exclaimed. It'll even drink the coffee for you. Okay. <laughs> Do have another little story. I'm going to embarrass my wife a little bit, but we were talking the other day, and we were talking politics. And we were having a little discussion and my wife says to me, you know, I wish that Congress was like a vending machine. At least it accept change. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to go through a few highlights of this week for you folks. Um, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're having a, our roundtable discussions, one for the SLA and one for our um, management chairs. 
And uh, they'll be off to, uh, I believe, in the room across the hall from us here. So um, even if you're not a chair of your committee, please feel free to come in, uh, listen, share some of the thoughts of what's going on in your state. That's a, it's a great place to learn and grow together. Uh, also, uh, tomorrow is our food and equipment show uh, at noon. Again, it'll be next door. And uh, we're really looking forward to seeing you all there. And uh, you'll get a chance to visit with some of our suppliers and uh, just folks bringing in some good wares for you to take a look at. So you know, plenty of time to visit and catch up. And um, if you haven't been, it's a great experience. Uh, Thursday, we have our luncheon at noon. We're looking forward to seeing you all there. And Thursday evening, we have a reception where you get a chance to do some networking. Also, we have a couple of new things this year. We have uh, uh, some folks brought in some baskets from their states, and we're going to be having an auction and auctioning some of that stuff off. So we'll be looking forward to uh, having some of that up front here as the days go on, and you can take a look at what we've got up for sale. And also, we're going to have a little story time, which uh, I've, I've been to a regional where we did this, and it was a lot of fun. But we're going to have uh, operators telling stories about situations that either happened to them or maybe a friend uh, in their business op- uh, relationships. And you just never know what you're going to hear. It, it, it can be quite, quite funny, quite fun. So uh, those are some of the things I'd like you to look forward to. And uh, once again, thanks for coming, and I'm going to turn it back to Dan. Thank you, Scott. It's, uh, would you please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? Okay, the, cor- the flag is up in the, would be on your left-hand side up in the corner. So, uh, Pledge Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one, one nation, nation under God, God indivisible, indivisible, with liberty and justice, and justice for all. Thank you. Is Herbert in the room, Herbert Rito? Could you come on up, Herbert, and offer us a a short prayer? Let us pray. Most God, our Father, we come, Lord God, just to say thank you for another blessed day. Another day, Lord God, that you allowed us to come, Lord God. Father God, we thank you for your traveling grace and your mercy, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, for having safety around this world, Lord God, as we travel, Lord God. And, Father God, we pray now, Lord God, that you would guide us and direct us as we enter into this convention, Lord God. Into this conference, Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that you would just have your way, Lord God. Bless all the participants. Bless our staff, Lord God, the president, and all of those that work so hard to put this together. We pray, Lord God, on your blessing, Lord God, and we'll be so careful to give you the honor, to give you the glory. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Herbert. Thank you. Uh, Okay. um, uh, Some of our um, friends from Nevada wanted to have a a short meeting up in the uh, RSVA suite. So if someone would come on up, uh, we'll see to it that you get up there in a timely manner. Uh, it is a secured elevator, and, secu- uh, and we'll get you in there so you can uh, host a meeting until 11 o'clock. Then we'll clear out, and they'll bring the pizzas in for our pizza luncheon. Uh, we'll get people back up there. 
Again, it's just uh, fantastic to be here, and you know, I guess sometimes we feel like we're preaching to the choir. Uh, we're here to learn, and there are probably some out there that probably should be here. You know, I've I've never ever attended a conference that I did not take something away from, and sometimes I maybe walked out feeling I didn't leave anything behind, but I've always always taken something away, and that's what life is all about. It's a, a learning endeavor, so we can Im- improve ourselves, but probably more importantly, improve the lives of our families, our colleagues, and our neighbors and uh, whoever we, our lives touch as we go through life. Uh, we're just here for a short time, so we have to do the best we can every second and every moment that we have available. And that said, I'm confident you will go away much better person than you came in this room this morning. Thank you. Again, enjoy the hospitality and... As a footnote, uh, our board of directors yesterday approved that we'll we'll be back here at the Golden Nugget next year, the week of February 15th. I regret to say that conflicts with Mardi Gras, but, uh, you know, we can't uh, take care of everyone every time, but we, we try our best. So thank you, and we'll enjoy the week, and we'll, if nothing else, we'll see you back next year. Scott? Okay, is, is, is Carol Ewing here? Chris Mazza? If you'd like to come up and give us a welcome. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see so many people here today. Uh, thank everybody for coming. Uh, just to echo some sentiments, um, I agree that, that these things are really valuable. Uh, one of the things that we're finding in kind of our day-to-day lives is sometimes the old business models that we've been doing, they don't necessarily work anymore. So I know that uh, through my conversations with other BEP directors, a lot of business models change and a lot of opportunity for new businesses exist out there. We've been exploring some different kind of things here in Nevada possibly some dry cleaning, um, even working with other outside companies, private companies that understand the BEP programs really well and are really receptive to bringing on blind operators into that business and having it work a little bit better than, you know, maybe traditionally it does. So I challenge everybody while they're here this week to talk to as many people as you can to really get all the ideas out there um, and continue to do that even after the, this week is over. Because if we don't really monitor our programs and change them as the economy changes, as other business models change, then we'll kind of be left in the dust. And, and that's not a good situation for, you know, operators or BEP staff. Um, another thing that's really important to us and that we've been looking at, and I'm really I'm proud of my, my team is uh, right over there at that table, um, so, yeah, if you see them, just uh, get with them this week and talk to them about the training that we're doing. Um, I think that we've kind of fallen back on the wayside a little bit over the years, and we have a new training site that we're all really excited about. Uh, we're going to be putting a lot of operators through there, and I think that that really is going to make a big difference moving forward with the way we operate these individual sites. 
So talk to them, see what we're doing, ask a lot of questions, uh, because I, you know, I, I don't need to tell anybody how important training is and, and how much we need, really need to emphasize that. So uh, that's really it. Just thank, thanks again for coming. Um, I, I think this is a really valuable tool. Uh, please, again, talk to everybody that you can this week. I'd like to introduce Carol Ewing, the uh, Nevada NCBV Chair. Thank you. Gosh, thank you. How nice to see you, and welcome to Nevada. As chair of the committee, I felt it important this year to say <clears throat> hello and goodbye. It appears that I'm retiring in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and uh, I want you to know how special you have been in my life for the last 20 years. <clears throat> I was 50 years old when I lost the vision the last time. And it took me about four years to figure out how to travel safely and independently again because I had been. My records show that I had a secret clearance and worked in a remote area <clears throat> in Nevada. One of the first things they allowed me to do was to learn to read and write Braille. One day my counselor phoned and said, Carol, they're mainstreaming a young man in the Clark County School District and they need someone with the working knowledge of Braille. Would you like to go to work? I said, surely. What do they do? She said, I don't know. I said, of course. I want to go to work. So I find out a few years later that I was the first blind person the Clark County School District hired to support a blind child. Since then, they have hired a number of those. Then the second thing I did, I was there for about 15, 17 years. I decided I needed to do something different, so I came into the Business Enterprise of Nevada program and had the opportunity to meet each of you. I need to thank you for being you. Thank you for being in Las Vegas, in Nevada, and supporting the program so great as you do. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Top of the day. Thank, thank you, Carol. Thank you. And, um, just a word of caution. You, do not have, you will not get my signature on your retirement form. You, you're not allowed to retire. Thank you. Yeah, they're, they're stuck in there. I don't know how to work this. We'll, we'll get it for you. I think I know how to work these things. <laughs> Snug fit. There we go. Uh, Richard said he'd run around for us. We'll uh, go around the room now and uh, have uh, introductions. If you give your name and... Uh, you know, where you're from, and if you have a cute quip, we'll gladly you know, accept that. Richard? Richard Bird from Ohio will bring the mic around. Hello, everybody. Uh, okay, I won't introduce myself. They already did. So, <coughs> this is the 39th annual Sagebrush Conference. Where were y'all 39 years ago? I was just being born. And I came to that first conference. No, I didn't. I didn't get there until about 10 years later. Richard, uh, as you get started, if you folks, if there's anybody in the room, this is your first conference, we'd love to hear about that as well. So when you tell us who you are and where you're from, be sure to mention this is your first That's conference. That's where I was going, Scott. Thank you. Yep. 
I'm Matthew Stahl. I uh, work for the BEP in Arizona, do service and move vending machines. This is my first time here, and uh, can't wait to mingle with you all and learn some more interesting things. Hi, my name is Rob Jeffrey. I'm with the Arizona Business Enterprise Program. I'm a business consultant. It's my third time here. Keep coming back. Hi, I'm Tressa Fax. I'm here from Nevada, and I am a BEP trainee. Sue Sipple, Wisconsin. Okay, everybody speak close in the microphone because we're having sound issues in here. I don't know if you've heard it. Scott Meehan from the Utah School for the Deaf and Blind, and this is my second year here. Welcome back. Marcellus Primus. I'm with the South Carolina Commission for the Blind. This is my first sagebrush, and uh, looking forward to speaking with everybody. Okay. Elaine Robertson, South Carolina Commission for the Blind, and this is also my first time here. Welcome. Chairperson. Oh. Good morning, Cynthia Hout, Chairperson of Idaho. Um, Ariana Ruzovic, uh, Idaho Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. This is my first year at Sagebrush. Kathleen Fujimoto from Honolulu, Hawaii, um, BP. And um, it's over 10 years that I've been here. Aloha and good morning, Lori Wada, Deputy Attorney General representing the agency, and I've been here about 10 years. Hello, Bruce Chin, uh, BEP, Hawaii. This is my first year. Welcome. 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 Jill Noble, Cleveland, Ohio. Penny Reed from Mississippi. Dan Brown, uh, first time at the conference. I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I'm uh, here with Intuit. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Ted Drake from Intuit. I think this is my sixth year. Mark Erickson, state of Washington. Been here forever, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Travers from Colorado. Al Travers from Aurora, Colorado. Mike Reed from Mississippi. Good morning, John Hewlett, BEP Director, Minnesota. Good morning, Kent Walzer, BEP, Wisconsin. All right, Wisconsin. <laughs> Mark Sennett from Wisconsin BEP. As in the, tar- the Target Corporation, they, they call it the Minnesota Badgers now. <laughs> I'm Gianna Catanzaro with uh, the Wisconsin Group. <laughs> Dave Robinson with Nebraska Commission for the Blind, my first year. Welcome. Carol Jenkins with the Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm the Deputy Director for Services and supervise our BEP program. Oh, and it's my first time. Hello, I'm Ivan, and uh, I'm from Nevada, and this is my fourth year. Hi, uh, Harold Petrovsky, also from Las Vegas, home of the Raiders. I'm Marco Surtado for the State of Nevada, second time in the conference. We gotta take a pause here because I gotta get a hug. Hey, Carol, how you been? 
Good seeing you. Carol Ewing from Nevada. And this ain't her first time. She says she's retiring. Lucky you. Good morning, Rich Martusi, FSIG, teaming partner. Good morning, Paul Patchy, second from California. Good morning. I'm Joni Patchy from California. I'm uh, Leslie Tom from Sacramento, California. Jeff Tom, California. Emma Godinez with BEP in Los Angeles, first time in this conference. Naresh Palani, operating vending machines at State Prisons from Kern County, California. Sandy Balani from Southern California. I've been coming here for the last 10 years. You go, girl. Good morning, everybody. I'm Mike Pemble. I work for the Michigan uh, Services for the Blind State Licensing Agency. I'm an administrator there. Good morning. I'm Dorothy Young with the great state of Mississippi, and I represent the SLA there. I'm the Director of Vocational Rehab for the Blind, and this is my first time attending the conference. I'm Robert Biggs, BEP Mississippi. My name is Cleveland Biggs, BEP Mississippi. James Carter, first time to the conference in Mississippi. Soon to be recognized as one of the great programs. Anita Brown, this is my second time. I'm the sighted guide for Sorrento Urshery. I'm Sorrento Urshry, BP, Mississippi. This is my second year having a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. Herbert Rido, Louisiana. Dan Phillips, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm Roy Harmon. I'm from Salinas, California. I've been so a lot of the uh, sagebrush shows at the first one and the one that occurred before the first one. Emma Palmer, Louisiana. Pat, Pam Gaffney, Louisiana. Frank Gaffney, committee chair, Louisiana. I think this is my 10th one. Keep on coming back. We need you people. Uh, Dave Padgett, Cleveland, Ohio. Lisa Padgett, Cleveland, Ohio, both first time. Oh, first timers. Y'all got to come back again. Boy, I recognize this guy. How you doing? Hey, good morning, everyone. Randy Hout from Oregon, elected committee chair, and I believe I've been to about 15 of the sagebrushes. Tenderoni. Hi, I'm Rick Morin, ACB Radio from Massachusetts. I think this is our seventh year from be, uh, being here broadcasting live, an ACB Radio live event. And we invite all of you to come on over and say hi. We're on the left-hand side of the building, uh, left-hand side of the room. Come on over. We may even put you on the air if you want. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here and a privilege. Thanks.
And this is Rick's sidekick, Brian Charlson, uh, immediate past first dude of ACB. And uh, happy to be here from Massachusetts and happy to see vending continuing to be a strong and important program in the whole rehabilitation process. Um, I'd like to offer a special thank you to Rick and Brian from ACB Radio. Our entire conference is being live streamed. So if you get a microphone in hand, speak clearly into the microphone because people around around the United States, around the world will be listening in. Thank you, Rick, Brian. Hi, I'm Bernetta, first time uh, trainee, BEP trainee. Where are you from, huh? Las Vegas. Las Vegas? See, I couldn't live there. I'd be broke all the time. <laughs> Good morning, Nathan Pullen, uh, program director for the Arizona BEP. Hi, Dennis Chambers from Portland, Oregon. This is my first time. Welcome. Welcome. Jennifer from Portland, Oregon, and this is my first year. John Folks from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I'm like the committee chair of Wisconsin. Carlos Servan, director of the Nebraska Commission for the Blind. Just want to announce that um, in December we got an award from the Department of Corrections for 12 new buildings. And I want to thank Carol Jenkins and Dave Robinson who are here. But also, they will be asking questions uh, about how to to run it um, better. But again, uh, Carlos Servan, SLA, Nebraska. Mark Schultz with OSERS and RSA. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Rob Essenberg, uh, chairman of the B or chairman of the elected operators in Michigan, and I've been coming off and on for thirty years. Good morning, Constance Anger from Michigan. Okay, honey, your turn. Hi, my name is Donna Seliger. I'm from West Des Moines, Iowa, and I think if I'm calculating right, this is my 30th year. <laughs> Who, babies? We Welcome need more back. of her. <laughs> Here's another good one. Oops. Miles Tomashura from the land of Aloha. <laughs> Rex is Shikawa, Hawaii. Walter Ishikawa, Hawaii. Hey, Walter. <laughs> Tom Morikami, Hawaii. Ui Ishikawa, Hawaii. Norman Ota from Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha. Kathy Welsh from Pahrump, Nevada. Member of NCB and a volunteer. Marvin Takaesu, Hawaii. Wanda Takaesu, I'm from Hawaii, and this is my first time. Welcome. Aloha and good morning. Ronald Floramata, vendor from Hawaii. This is not my first, definitely not my last. Yeah, I'm afraid it's not my last, neither. <laughs> Paul Escalano, Mississippi. Michael Mason, State of Mississippi. Rena Mason, Mississippi. John Albright, retired vendor, Minnesota. 
Celia Albright from Minnesota. Walter Berry, teaming partner, Southern Food Service Management from Alabama. Woody Matthews, Florida. I'm the president of Randolph Shepherd Vendors in the state of Florida. Uh, my name is Colton Knight, and uh, I'm from the state of Florida. I've been in the Randolph Shepherd program for three years. Chuck Vickett from Florida, also known as Big Blind Chuck. I'm here looking for the funny side of being blind. Thank you. Walk out on the strip. It's out there. <laughs> Jim Worth, I'm the chairman of Florida. I'm glad to be back. Y'all have a good day. Alan Risk, I'm with the BEP staff of Florida and first-year attendee. Alton Palmore, state of Florida, third time. First time, that's first good. Time. Yeah, third year, first time. Yeah. Keep coming back. Here's an old friend. Ron Eller from North Carolina. I had nothing to do with your age, Ron. Um, T.J. McCormick, 29 years young, first-time attendee, and I hope to have half the experience that all of you guys have here. Thank you. Now, there are some, a few more, but they're not in the rooms at the moment, and I got a couple at the front table that I didn't introduce. Did I get everybody else? I think I did. Okay, artist, this is your turn. Um, Artis Bazin, uh, Burbank, California. And um, someone dropped some raffle tickets by the registration desk. If you come up to me and tell me how many you dropped, 47. I'll give them to you. <laughs> Thanks. And my husband's here, but he went to run an errand for me, Kevin Berkeley. <laughs> Th thank you, Richard. Thank you. And welcome, everyone. Well, let's keep the agenda rolling here. First off, we have uh, Scott Meehan and mobility on the job and student collaboration uh, translation. So let's let's give a warm hand for Scott. So good morning. My name is Scott. I'm with the uh, Utah School for the Deaf, and I'm an orientation and mobility specialist. Is there anybody in the room who does not know what orientation and mobility is? You raise your hand if you don't know what that is. Not one, uh, one room, one hand. <laughs> so orientation and mobility for all these 30 years that I've been uh, providing blind rehab services, I've always described it as getting from point A to point B safely and efficiently and as independently as possible, whether that's using a dog guide, a long cane, or whatever means necessary to get you from one place to another. So that's what orientation and mobility is. Let me start with uh, how I got into the field of blindness and visual impairment. I started off working with adults at the Seeing Eye Incorporated, training dog guides for the blind. What a great experience that was. Um, a wonderful place there in Morristown, New Jersey. When I was there, I was obviously working with adults who, for the most part, were totally blind. 
And from there, I went off to uh, Western Michigan University. And at Western Michigan U- University, it was a great program, but they taught you how to work with somebody who was totally blind with no other impairments. And I'm getting to the punchline of this. So from there, I went to Heinz VA Hospital, and they also were very strict on using the blindfold. Everybody was blindfolded there, no matter how much vision you had there. Uh, So it was a great program as well for blinded veterans in Chicago. Spent two years there, and all of a sudden, the world changed on me. And I went to the South Carolina School for the Deaf and Blind, and I had to work with these uh, people known as kids. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I had no training in working with kids, one. And two, I had no experience working with the fact that the majority of the kids that I'd be working with, or half of them, would be multiply impaired. That wasn't taught to me at Western Michigan University, so I did a lot of this stuff called OJT, on-the-job training. But it actually worked out quite well. And some of the paradigm shifts that I had in working with kids who were blind and visually impaired a uh, little short story here. So I had a student by the name of Scott, which is my name. And he was uh, nine years old, congenitally blind, totally blind. And uh, this is my first year that I've been working with him. And I said, Scott, I want you to lean up against the wall here. i got to run to the front office real quick, and I'll be right back. So I go off to the front office, and I come back, and Scott is following my instructions to a T. He's leaning up against the wall. One slight problem. He was one foot away from the wall, facing the wall, with his forehead on the wall, with his hands and arms down, dangling down uh, beside him. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on here? So I had to teach him about how to lean up against the wall. And so back to the adults now. So the training for orientation and mobility, we always talk about, okay, you start with basic sighted guide, and then you go to uh, the diagonal cane technique, and there, from there you do indoor travel training, then you do residential training, and then you do small business, and then you go on from there and do transportation and so on and so forth. So we have an agenda as an orientation and mobility specialist. And what I discovered through the years there is that I threw that into the, uh, the heap bin and said, well, that was just nothing more than the foundation of orientation and mobility. I've got to go beyond that and do some of these uh, peripheral things that you don't even think about as an orientation and mobility specialist. And one of the things that I learned early on as well is that I saw some of the students that I worked with and thought, my gosh, there's a thousand needs And I'm only able to meet 50 of those needs this year here. So a buddy of mine who had been in the field for 40 years, he said to me, Scott, I was much like you when I started off in the field, and you can't concentrate on the 1,000 things that this student needs. You need to work on the 50 that you can do this year, and then next year you'll do another 50, and the year after that you'll do another 50, and so on and so forth, and eventually that student will hopefully be as independent as possible by the time they reach uh, adulthood. So that really helped me psychologically get myself wrapped around uh, without having to worry about all the deficits that some of those students had and concentrate on the needs that they might have for that year that I could accomplish with them. So... After that, I started thinking to myself, my gosh, I've been in the field for 30 years, and I'm going to be retiring here on April 19th. Not that I'm counting the days, but uh, I'm pretty close to counting the days. 
And I started thinking about the, what are my successes and failures that I've had over the years? And I've had, uh, I guess, a number of both. And I think that I've had more successes than failures. And I'd like to talk about some of those just because I think it might be instructive to you uh, on what the thought process is of an orientation and mobility specialist as he looks back in the, um, in the rearview mirror. So Scott was certainly one of those individuals, and I have another story about him. So one day I'm driving up to Columbia, South Carolina to do some light-controlled intersections with him, and as we're driving down the road, uh, we stop at this traffic light, and there's just a ton of noise because there's a landscaping crew with weed eaters, lawnmowers, and everything else, and blowers, and making too much noise, and I couldn't have a conversation with them. So finally, uh, I get past that, and I said, sorry, Scott, I couldn't get to talk with you here because of all the uh, noise there, and talking about the various things that were making those noises. And I said, do you know what a weed eater is? He said, no. I said, do you know what a lawnmower looks like? He said, no. So I turned the car around and said, the heck with light-controlled intersections. We went over to Home Depot, and we spent an entire hour looking at every single type of lawnmower, axes, hammers, screwdrivers, you name it. We were looking at everything. Not that I cared that he was going to cut the grass one day, but I wanted him to understand what a lawnmower looked like so that when his friends say that they're going to cut the grass uh, at the house there, he can say, oh, is it one of those push mowers? Is it a self-propelled mower? Is the bag off to the side? Is it behind there, one of those mulching kinds? I wanted him to understand all these types of things that he doesn't see. And one thing that I've discovered through the years is those individuals that were blind from birth, that were totally blind, that were really exceptional, typically what I found is that universally these guys who are exceptional, uh, they were always inquisitive and explorative of their environment. I'll give you an example. One guy I met, he was totally blind from birth, and he was telling me a story about how he was um, with his buddies who were sighted driving down the road, and the guys went, oh, there's a boxcar over there on the train track just sitting there. And he said, what is that? And so they pulled over. And he said, pull over. I want to check this thing out. So he gets up on top of the boxcar with his cane, and he's exploring this whole thing from top to bottom. And finally, the uh, three cop cars come screaming up to there. He's like, what the heck is this guy doing on top of here? And they realize he's blind, and he tells the story. And, of course, everybody got a good laugh out of the story. But this was the type of person who was really exceptional because he said, if I didn't know what it was, I, I want to know what it is. Somebody show me. Somebody describe it to me. Let me, have a, let me feel it if I can. And I think those type of people are very successful in life that do that when they're congenitally blind. Now, I have a question for you guys, and that is, how many of you are in here are blind or visually impaired? Could you raise your hand, please? So I'd say that's over half. I'd say that's about two-thirds. Now, so those that are blind and visually impaired there, could you raise your hand if you think that you got too much orientation and mobility training? <laughs> and not one hand is in the air, as I suspected. <laughs> How many people in the room wish they had received more orientation and mobility training? Could you raise your hand, please? Okay, so out of the blind population in the room, I would say that's probably a third wish they got more. So I'm assuming the rest of you got about what you felt like you needed in life. So that's a good sign that we are 
quasi doing well as a profession of orientation and mobility specialist. Okay, so back to my paradigm shift that my starting off here was very much about the foundation of orientation and mobility going through that whole curriculum and then having to shift gears to say, well, hang on a minute, that curriculum's good, but it is nothing more than what we call the foundation. So I felt like what I was doing uh, after that when I had my paradigm shift with Scott is that I started saying, I'm building a house here. Yes, it's important to have that foundation of those skills of being able to travel in a residential environment or a small business environment, etc. But a lot of those peripheral things are important as well. I'll give you a few examples with some of my students who are highly visual. I mean, they're visual travelers, they're not bumping into the furniture, they're not tripping on stairs, curbs, and uneven surfaces, no depth perception problems. With some of those individuals, the teacher of the visually impaired wouldn't even send them to an orientation and mobility specialist, so you might not even hear them as an O&M specialist. So I made an effort to make sure that I knew who these people were so that I could start educating them in general about blindness and visual impairment, especially if they had a progressive eye condition. But some of the things that I added to that foundation of curriculum for an O&M are things like, what is AER? How many in the room know what AER is? Not very many. AER is the Association for the Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired. That's the professional organization that is for O&M specialists, TVIs, and others that work with and serve those who are blind and visually impaired. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that. Who knows what NFB is? Who knows what ACB is? So those are other things that my students might not have been taught by an O&M specialist, but I made sure that they knew what those things were too, just because they would be more rounded and more educated about blindness and visual impairment. I also talked about optometry and ophthalmologist and what those differences are. I talked about how to give a low vision exam and what does the terminology mean of uh, 2200 or 2020? What does that even mean? How many people in the room understand what when you go to the optometrist and they say 2020 or 2200, what that means. How many know what that means in the room? I'd give that about half. So let's, let's cover that real quick so the other half will know. So basically what that is, when you're in the eye doctor's room, you're at about 20 feet. Sometimes you're at 10 feet, but what they'll do is they'll take a, a eye chart, and that capital E that you see at the top of the eye chart is a size... 200. So if you are legally blind in that sense, that you can only see that letter E, then you are quote-unquote legally blind. You are 2200. At a distance of 20 feet, you see a size target of 200. So at 2020 would obviously be at 20 feet, you see a size target that is 20. Now, most optometrists I've found over the years, too, a little aside here, do we have any optometrists or ophthalmologists in the room? So what I've found is that most optometrists don't know how to work with a blind or visually impaired person. You have to get somebody who really understands the blind and visually impaired. Because what they do is if you can't see the capital E on the eye chart, they just say you're 2200. Well, you might be 2700. So a lot of people would use what they call a fine bloom chart, a totally different chart that has really massive letters. And instead of being, uh, as an example, 2,700, this massive size uh, 
uh, seven that's on the chart, they might have to bring that in closer and closer to you so where they might say, okay, what you really see is at five feet, you can see a size 700 chart or 700 size target. I'm sorry. So what does that equate to when you take it to 20? Well, you're at five. How many times do I have to multiply that by to get to 20? I have to multiply it by four, exactly. So now I've got to take the 700 and multiply that by four, and what's that equal? Yeah, now you're 20, 2,800 is your real acuity. So you're not going to find that at most optometrists. But anyway, that's just kind of a side there about blindness and visual impairment. One more thing, one more layer that I was teaching my students who are blind and visually impaired. Oftentimes, I would also do uh, excited... I would also do um, basic sighted guide with a lot of my students because many of them would go to a camp for the blind. Well, when you go to a camp for the blind, what are you going to do? You have a lot of vision, but your buddy that you just met doesn't have a lot of vision. You're going to have to guide them around sometimes. Now, I wanted to make sure they knew how to do it properly. So, and one of, and giving you the punchline now on this whole thing is the fact that after doing this job for 30 years of my life, here I was, not until last year when I attended this conference did I start thinking about, oh my gosh, I really should have, this is one of my failures, I should have been t uh, thinking about my student caseload and thinking who might be a possible candidate for becoming a vendor. Boy, isn't that a shame? I really kind of lost out on that part. But it's not too late. I certainly can make an impact with the rest of the O&Ms. And uh, one good thing is following up behind me is going to be Elaine, who's going to be talking about this in greater detail and those types of individuals who might be great candidates for them. So now it's time for a joke. So these two 90-year-old uh, couple, they go to the doctor for their annual physical. And the doctor says, you know, I got really good news. For two individuals that are in their 90s, you guys are really doing well health-wise. Unfortunately, your memory is starting to go, so I want you to start writing things down. So later that evening, the two of them are at the house, and he stands up and he looks at his wife and he says, uh, do you want anything from the kitchen? She says, yes, I want a bowl of ice cream, but you better write it down. You might forget. And he says, look, I don't need to write it down. It's a bowl of ice cream. I don't need to write it down. She says, yeah, but I want some strawberries with it, and I know you'll forget those strawberries, so you better write that down. He says, you know, I don't need to write that down. It's a bowl of ice cream with strawberries. She says, yeah, but I want some whipped cream with it, and I know you'll forget that whipped cream, so you better write that down. He says, look, I don't need to write it down. It's a bowl of ice cream, strawberries, and whipped cream. She says, yeah, but I want some nuts on top, and I know you'll forget those nuts, so you better write that down. He says, look, I got it. You want a bowl of ice cream, strawberries, whipped cream, and some nuts on top. She says, yeah, but I want a cherry up on the top there, and I know you'll forget that cherry, so you better write that down. He says, look, I don't need to write it down. It's a bowl of ice cream, strawberries, whipped cream, some nuts on top, and a cherry on the top. I don't need to write it down. He goes off into the kitchen. Twenty minutes later, he comes back, and he hands her a plate of bacon and eggs. She looks at the plate of bacon and eggs, looks up at him, looks back at the plate of bacon and eggs, and says, I knew you should have written it down. You forgot my toast. <laughs> With that, I would love, if somebody has a microphone, that we're going to be walking around the room. 
Do you have anything that you'd like to share? I would like to hear from you about your experiences with your orientation and mobility specialist of some successes, or what did they do for you? If you could tell a short story about that, whether it's funny or just a success story, or maybe even a failure that maybe you wish that you had a little bit more of some type of training that you didn't get when you were growing up or as an adult with uh, adult services. Is there anybody like to share a story from their experiences? Just give a shout out. I've got a microphone, so I'll find you. Just give me a shout out. Were those folks that didn't get enough orientation and mobility specialists? What didn't you get enough of? That's what I'm real curious about. Don't be shy. There we go. We got a couple of hands up. Okay, I know there's somebody back here. There we go. There's one. There you go. Hello. I, this is Rob from Michigan again. Um, I uh, was a founding member of a uh, camp uh, for the blind or an organization that ran a camp for the blind in Michigan called Camp Tuspahita. And we would have uh, 30 to 50 kids every summer um, in different activities during the, during the summer. And uh, we had a parents' weekend. So on the weekends we had parents. We would do activities for the parents and activities for the kids. So we'd do orientation mobility for the parents. And we'd blindfold them and, and take them around the camp. And at camp we had a lake, and the lake had a dock. And the dock went straight out into the lake, and then it made a right turn and a left turn, and it made a rectangle, and in the middle of the rectangle was a pool. And on the outside of the edge of the dock was all lake, and on the inside was the pool. Well, there was a railing around the pool on the inside on three sides, no railing on the outside of the dock. So we'd have the kids down there and their parents, and they'd all the kids would be showing their parents around, and we'd do this orientation mobility with them. Never fails. Every summer, kids made it around the dock, and we'd have at least one parent go in the lake. <laughs> Anybody else? And what deficits? I really want to know what deficits. What what would do you wish you had more of in orientation and mobility? Where where do we let you down as a profession? There, oh, we can take the hits. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Mason, and I guess what I would like to say is that I wish that I could really get people that are sighted to understand what my vision is, how I view the world, and the way that I see it, so they can better understand that when we're walking or going places or doing things, because I have several people that pick me up and drop me off, whether it be at work or in a grocery store. And standing back and looking at it, you can't tell what my vision is because it's not obvious until you see me walk into something. But if you don't have a cane, then of course the person said, well, look at that, per that drunk person. But I really would like, I think where I kind of felt short at is that having somebody to sit down with my wife or some of the associates that I have and teach them how to function with a person that's visually impaired to my degree. Um, because until you can actually see the world the way I see it, it is almost impossible to truly understand it. Thank you. Unfortunately, I missed that whole thing. 
<laughs> Scott, well, can you summarize that for me? Well, let me, let me, let me put it in this word. If, if I'm walking and I have to go into a grocery store and I am with my wife or whomever I'm with, um, when a person's walking and they see somebody to the left, of course, they can say, say, hey, how you doing? And you hold it on to them. You have to just almost dance with the rhythm of their body. So I don't think the training that I said I missed for myself, the training I miss will be for the person that's leading me around. They need to be more educated on how I see the world so they know how to lead and guide me around. Ah, now I got you. That's an excellent point there. And that's a great point. Because a lot of times um, when I work with the students who are blind and visually impaired, I really try to <clears throat> teach them from two standpoints uh, when they're doing basic sight of guide, because that's what you were talking about, correct? Yeah, so when, when I teach my students about basic sight of guide, I do try to tell them, you know, you are the, now the sighted person, even though you might be visually impaired. You're, you're helping your buddy who's totally blind. You have to be able to understand from an instructor standpoint, not only from a student standpoint, but also from an instructor standpoint of how to help them uh, be acclimated to their environment and what's around them and, and giving them a good synopsis of what's, what's, your, what's happening in the world. And, and it's different. The way you would describe it to somebody who might be visually impaired would be different than you would be telling somebody who's obviously visual. So you really have to give them a, a, um, a picture of what they're seeing. And I don't think that most people do a good job with that. You know, now we have descriptive videos. I think those are pretty good. I saw a couple of those, and they did a pretty good job of trying to let the blind person understand that. Well, it's the same kind of theory um, that you're using if you're helping somebody who's blind or visually impaired. And most people don't know how to help someone who's blind or visually impaired, especially if you ask somebody for a route from one point to another point. Well, they're teaching you from their standpoint with no experience of O&M. And that might be not the safest route, nor the most efficient route for you to get from one place to another. Got another hand, Scott, to your right. Oh, here we go. Okay. My name's Kathy, and I'm from Nevada. Kathy, could you speak up, please? Speak up. Okay. One of the biggest issues for me was that when the mobility instructor come out to our rural community out in Pahrump, that was all well, fine, and good, but it was, didn't teach me about big cities. So I went to Seattle, and I was totally lost, you know, trying to get across the road, um, what to do, what to look for, so on and so forth. I mean, I was absolutely just horrified. And... Also, they didn't work real well on depth perception, you know, because I have zilch in depth perception. It goes back to having a thousand needs when people are growing up as kids and they don't get some uh, quality services from point A or from when they're very young all the way until they graduate high school. I'm sure there's some deficits for some of the folks who go, hey, gee, I wish I had some more about bus travel or more about cities or light-controlled intersections or anything like that. I guess where we need even quality adult services, too, that you can go back for some extra training 
for services. And I wish there were more orientation and mobility specialists in the world to kind of fill the gap when you have a need, or even if you have a new job and you, or you move to a new city or a new place, you should be able to get services to help you with that environment. Just because you can get around in one particular environment doesn't mean you can get around in the new place where you now live. Uh, so hopefully we have some more people coming in through the pipeline. But we are better as a field than we used to be. I remember being in Georgia, and I love Georgia. I was there for um, many, of, many years. But the services of orientation and mobility were really scant, and I mean scant. So I, I was filling a gap when I was there providing O&M services, but I could tell that, man, we needed way more people in the field doing blind rehab services, and I felt bad for some of the kids who were not getting quality services in some of the counties. And my time, I've been given the two-minute sign and then a foot in the air, which is going to be at my backside if I don't get off of here and let Elaine speak. <laughs> but if you see me walking around and uh, you bump into me at some point, my name is Scott Meehan, and I'd love to talk to you, and I'd love to have you share your experiences of O&M and your successes and failures, and I'd love to collaborate, collaborate with you and learn from you about how we can do a better job as orientation and mobility specialists. And I thank you for your time. And don't forget to write it down. There we go. All right. Uh, Elaine, uh, yes, Elaine Robertson will now give our next presentation. So, Elaine, you want to come up, please? So, I'm Elaine Robertson. I'm from South Carolina Commission for the Blind. Um, I want to thank Dan for inviting me here today. Nevada is my home. This is where I started my public rehab journey, and I didn't really want to leave, and someday I'm sure I'll be back. So this is home to me, and I'm really, really thankful that I'm here. So what I'd like to talk about today is the recruiting for BEP. Right now, and now my PowerPoint's not going to work, Right now, the majority of recruitment that occurs out there is either through our rehab counselors, if they remember, because unfortunately, BEP is not a huge priority to them, or from current blind license vendors, or from vendors who have moved from one state to another. But we need to make the, the awareness of the Randolph, Randolph Shepherd program and make it a true option not a last choice or a backup plan or something to do in retirement. We need to look at ways to do this and attract younger vendors into the program so we can really make it grow with the times. So how young is too young? Well, federal law says that a vendor must be at least 18-year-old to operate a facility, but don't overlook the value that Randolph Shepard can bring to the pre-employment transition services. We all have to deal with that in our agencies across the country now under WIOA. We have to spend 15% of our federal money on pre-employment transition services. We're blind services. We don't have the population that the general agencies have. So we have to get creative. Randolph Shepard's a way to do that. We have to look at our current BLVs. We have some super talented business operators out there. They've grown their business. They market well. They can be mentors to these young teens. 
They can show them what entrepreneurship is all about. Career exploration can occur at any vending location, small, large, anything in between. For 17 and 18-year-olds, a summer internship or a work experience can be provided with a seasoned blind license vendor. We need to bring the blind license vendors to the forefront of this program. They're not just consumers turned entrepreneurs. They are business people. Workplace readiness training. Who better to teach some of our young people appropriate customer service, appropriate interpersonal communication? Introductory training can be developed for summer teen programs and fit right in with financial literacy classes. Again, who better to show our young people how to become self-sufficient? Job shadowing. A lot of times these 16, 17, 18-year-olds, they don't know what they want to do. They're being pushed toward college. For some, that's a great option. For some, they may even study business management and then come back to the business enterprise program. But be creative. Share the opportunities and the benefits of entrepreneurship. Be better partners. Build teams with your agency that include your business enterprise, business consultants, your VR counselors, your transition team, and your training and employment staff. Too many times in smaller agencies or with business enterprise, and I did notice it when I was in Nevada, I've noticed it in South Carolina. Business enterprise program is kind of like off to the side, you're by yourself, and they don't work as part of the whole unit because you are a unique program. Create fact sheets and brochures. Print it in several formats, braille, large print, regular print. Those should be distributed wherever the VR brochures are distributed. Business enterprise staff and blind licensed vendors should attend local events and job fairs right alongside the VR staff. We want our blind licensed vendors to hire other people with vision impairments to work in their businesses. What better way to do that than have them attend these job fairs right alongside the staff? Prepare presentations about your program to share, NFB and ACB events, meetings, even here. <clears throat> attend Chamber of Commerce meetings with your VR staff. A lot of our VR staff and our program directors, they go out in the community. They attend Lions Club meetings. They attend Chamber meetings. BEP should be part of that process. We're building a bu businesses here. We're you know, bringing kids in, bringing other adults in to be business owners. They should be out there and be represented along with the rest of the community. And they should have a voice. We stress opportunity, and that's what you should be doing. Because owning the business is an opportunity. Clear up the misconception about Randolph Shepard only being vending machine roots. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the community. It's amazing how many people are not aware. Like in South Carolina, we have Fort Jackson. We have the troop dining facilities there. People don't realize that that is part of the business enterprise program. So when you start talking about it to some of these kids, they think, oh, I don't want to go fill vending machines. There's so much more than that. Stress the opportunity to be creative, that they can build their business. They can learn negotiation, compromise, patience, 
all while growing their own business and earning the opportunity to move up into larger locations. Demonstrate how your program is a great introduction to entrepreneurship without cash advancement or high overhead. It's a perfect opportunity for a young person who knows that they want to own their own business, but they need to gain that knowledge and experience. And really, who better to teach them than the vendors that we have right now? So how do we recruit in today's world? How do we recruit these millenniums and, and these younger people? First of all, you need to think technology. Cashless machines, online earning opportunities, computerized accounting systems. Let's face it, these kids today live on their phones or they live on their tablets. They don't know how to interact with people. But they have technology skills. So it's up to us to also teach them that interpersonal communication. Millenniums also want that instant gratification. They don't want to go to college for four years or six years and get an MBA. They want to own their business now. They want to be out there, their own boss, doing their own thing. They want to be creative when it comes to food. They don't want to offer just a lot of the standard options. They're more into healthy options and, and things like that. Micromarkets. We had one of our youngest vendors has a micromarket in South Carolina. Absolutely loves it. Flexibility in the working hours and the type of location. I don't think anybody in this room could probably tell me of a 16, 17, or 18-year-old who says, oh, yeah, I want a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday job that I'm going to work at for 30 years. It doesn't happen anymore. And they all want to be their own boss. Nobody wants to work for... I have a 14-year-old granddaughter. I have a 20-year-old granddaughter. They don't want to work for anybody else. They want to work for themselves, but they don't have a clue how to work for themselves. So in South Carolina, this is all new to us. We have a new commissioner who's a little more open to things and moving forward. So we're really starting to look at our BEP program. I'm doing a full evaluation, and we're starting to look at how can we incorporate this into our transition programs? How can we get our counselors on board so when they're discussing goals with pretty much anybody who would be eligible for the program, are they bringing up BEP? Are they trained? Do they have the knowledge? Are we incorporating this into our pre-employment transition programs? So many opportunities there. So we've just started a pilot program. In fact, it started with one consumer yesterday. And what we're going to do is we have a 20-year-old consumer. She completed three semesters in college, going for a business degree. She doesn't want to stay in school. School is not her thing. She wants to work. She wants to run her own business. But she doesn't want to go through a long training program and have to stay on campus because it's mostly the older adults who are on campus from our VR program. She doesn't want that. She wants to learn her way in her speed. So what we're doing is she's going to attend the center. She was there yesterday just for a basic BEP evaluation just to ensure that she does meet all of the requirements and has the skills she needs to at least enter the program. Her counselor, the BEP consultant, and the consumer are going to meet to revise the consumer's IPE to make sure that all the services she needs are incorporated. Then 
the team is going to work with T&E, and they're going to write a work experience contract for her, where she is going to be paired with one of our blind licensed vendors, and she's going to work 20 hours a week with this vendor, learning the program, from learning how he operates from the ground up. In the work experience, she's going to have the opportunity to also spend time at different types of facilities so that she really gets hands-on, whether it's a vending route, a cafeteria, snack bar, micromarket. We want her to see the options. At that point, while she's working, we're going to enroll her in the Hadley Institute Blind License Vendor Training so that she can work at home her own pace. And VR is going to pay her a stipend. The vendor's not going to have to pay her. VR will pay her a work experience stipend. Upon successful completion of the online training and the on-site work experience, the consumer will then come back to the training center. She'll spend about a week there to complete um, serve safe training and to undergo complete evaluation to make sure that she got everything she needed and to understand South Carolina laws around revenue and taxes. She will receive weekly supervision from the training and employment staff and her VR counselor and the BEP consultant will be available to check in with her. But again, we're not going to put this work on the BEP consultant we're still going to allow the VR staff and the training and employment staff to actually do the supervision. The $3,499 cost of the Hadley course is considerably less than transporting and housing a consumer for up to 18 weeks on campus. Online learning is attractive to the younger generation. Her training can occur anytime. The consumer doesn't have to wait for the next class to start because we have just one trainer, so she runs a class, and then there's a break, and then she runs another class, and then she can't run a class during the summer because we have the teens there, we can't have the adults there. So we're going to incorporate her into our summer program. This builds stronger internal partnerships with other programs because it makes your teams work together, your program teams. It recognizes the expertise of many current BLVs who work hard and are proud of their business. It increases measurable skill gains as people are licensed, which again is an RSA requirement. It allows consumers to learn from home instead of being away from their family for weeks or months on end, because that's another disadvantage right now with on-site training, is many of our consumers in South Carolina, it's very rural. Once you get outside of Columbia or Myrtle Beach, there's a lot of very rural areas. And we want to attract younger vendors, but they have families. They have obligations at home. They can't just come and stay at our center for 8 to 12 weeks to do this training and only go home on the weekends. So we need to give them options that work for them. It increases successful VR closures. And most importantly, it can create a lifelong opportunity for a person to remain independent and self-sufficient in ways that traditional employment cannot. And it will allow a program to grow and expand in areas that they haven't been able to because small towns and potential vendors don't or can't leave home to trade. And if you think about it in all of our states, you think about those small towns. Most of them have a courthouse or a police station or a post office, that's still an opportunity for vendors, even in a small town. 
But right now, because of the way that you have to train, they don't have that opportunity. So you're, we're losing opportunity for Randolph Shepard to also grow anywhere across the country because we can't really attack these rural areas. So that's the end of my presentation, but I'd like to hear from you and if there's anything creative your state's doing to attract younger people or how you, the blind licensed vendors in the audience feel about being mentors, being teachers, because we need you. We, we need you to share your experience. The average age of a vendor across the country is somewhere in the 60s now, so we need to bring some younger folks in. I do have a microphone if anybody wants to share, so just raise your Hello, uh, Randy from Oregon. I would just like to say what an inspiring uh, presentation. Uh, 20 years ago, if not, you know, 10 years ago, if not 20 years ago, these type of mindful, constructive, progressive um, concepts should have been adopted, even though they weren't. It's never too late, but I was really happy to hear what you're doing there, and these sort of uh, things not only with training, but also with the way people do businesses and, you know, outreach and so forth and so on are the things that will take Randall Shepard into the um, future and help it survive and help it expand. In Oregon, what I can tell you is several years ago, because we faced the same thing that, you know, it was a dumping ground. There was a mandate, don't bring anybody new into the program. We hadn't had managers in the program for at least eight years. There was very little growth within our program. So when we um, lobbied the legislature several years ago and incorporated a strong statute that not only enhanced the priority, but it also incorporated a requirement of the state agency to select um, train and install vendors into our program with the thought that this is going to help our program grow. Um, quite frankly, that's still a struggle we're having, but what you're talking about, what you're doing in South Carolina is uh, wonderful, and hopefully it can, uh, you know, help, help those other states that are trying to struggle with what to do. So, thank you. Thank you. And that's why I'm here. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know Elaine at the NCCB conference, and a lot of things impressed me about Elaine, but uh, what impressed me and comes to mind first is the fact that she's putting the C back in VRC. Yeah, as she mentioned, that sometimes the Randolph Shepard program is the last resort or we don't know what, whatever, you know. Um, and I've, there isn't a week goes by where I don't run into a VR, counts, VR person that Never heard of the Randolph Shepard program. Elaine understands the Randolph Shepard program, is committed and dedicated to it, and is a committed counselor. She stays with the client, not just a VR person that says, Oh, we got a BP staff over here, dump on them. No, Elaine will stay with them, and her, she preaches that and lives that life that we need the VRs, counselors, to work with our BEP staff and to work with us blind vendors that we have the best of the best out there providing customer service. And I'd like, really like to thank you personally, Elaine, for taking the time to come out here. Thank you. Thank you, Dan.
There's a hand. Good morning. This is Dorothy Young from Mississippi. Elaine, you hit on some very good topics, um, some pointers this morning that I want to take back. But one of the things that we have done in Mississippi is um, on my counselor's PDA, we, they have to have so many referred to our business enterprise program. Um, we have a closure goal for rehab, the number of uh, people that blind and visually impaired that we put to work. And so I just thought, how about so many refer to the BEP program because that's working. Um, another thing that you hit on was our internship program, um, how the internship program and that led to, could lead to, you know, younger vendors in the program. Today we have Mr. Cleavon Biggs with us, and Cleavon was an intern. He, we um, worked with the School for the Blind there, and our students at the School for the Blind would intern with our BEP vendors. And Cleavon is now a vendor. He has a micro market in Mississippi. So that is, you hit on some very good pointers. The other thing that I did not think about was the job fair. Um, we have three job fairs in our state, and you're right. I could have the blind vendors there set up just like an employer there because they're looking for servers. They're looking to hire people. And exactly. so that's, that's, that's very good. But one of the things that you all could look at is working with your vocational rehab, the blind program with your counselors, making sure that they're put on their PDAs. Right. Yep. Uh, this is Mike Reed from Mississippi. Uh, we have had a, an occasion to uh, take in potential vendors through the summer job. Uh, these have been teenagers. A lot of them have only had very limited work experience, if not most of them have, excuse me, uh, have had none at all. And I would encourage any of the, the the operators out there, if you have an opportunity to give the you know give these kids a chance, uh, some of them that uh, you know might join the program. Uh, that the ones that we've had, we've had you know some that uh, that have looked at the program and have decided it wasn't for them. But uh, just to give them that chance, get to that. Uh, it's, it, it also gives us a chance to look at the, the uh, potential vendors as a member of the uh, committee. If we have someone that, you know, that has gone through that program, we've seen how they work with customers, how they work with other employees. It gives us a, head, a, a heads up on how they would do as being a vendor. And it's, uh, that, you know, like I say, would, but it would definitely encourage anyone, if you have the chance, you know, but it, uh, you know be a mentor to those people. Well, that reminds me of when I worked in Vermont. Um, that's where I started, Vermont, Nevada, now South Carolina. But when I was in Vermont, I worked for a nonprofit mental health agency. And I worked with another person, and we developed a job developers coalition there. Because if anybody here knows Vermont, it's extremely rural. And when you're competing with, in the same town, a developmental agency, the prison, the state workforce, uh, voc rehab, there's a lot of job developers in this little town of 9,000 people. So we developed a, a coalition where we met regularly. And for Disability Mentoring Day, when we decided to have an event, we created an event where we invited our consumers and employers for breakfast. We had our, I called it my infomercial, and we had a speaker. 
And we let everybody mingle. We didn't have, like, employers here, consumers here. Everybody mingled. And then after breakfast, our consumers went off just for a short mentoring time, like two to three hours, with an area that they were interested in. Did it mean they were going to pursue that career? Not necessarily. Some of them we knew it wasn't really an option for them, but this was an opportunity for them to at least see what they had always dreamed about. So we had them off with police department, fire department. We had a bakery in the little town over, next town over, that made this huge batch of bread dough. We had about 10 consumers go there. They gave each one their own loaf to form. While it was rising, they took them on a tour of the bakery, explained how it worked. Then they let them bake the bread in their brick ovens and take it home with them. We had them at the grocery store. We had them at the rec center. So after their mentoring time, the consumers came back to our gathering place for lunch. We invited employers, but most employers didn't. And the best part of the day was we passed the mic. And we let everybody share their experience. That one day meant so much to so many people. Just those few hours to explore a career that they weren't sure they could do. This is something that our current vendors can give back. You know, all of you started at one time as a VR consumer. You can give back, offer to mentor a young person who isn't sure what they want to do. Because those hours made all the difference in the world for so many people. So Scott Meehan again. So one of the things I keep on thinking about, you are doing fantastic ideas of how to promote this, but here I am. I'm an O&M specialist for Utah School for the Deaf and Blind. Has my group of 12, 15 orientation and mobility specialists ever seen a video about successful uh, the vendor program, maybe some of the criteria that you're looking for, if individuals, successful individuals actually on the job, a, a actual professionally done video that's 15, 20 minutes long that you could send to AER conferences around the, uh, the entire country so they could show that for 15, 20 minutes. So it would be a great opportunity to get it out there to the professionals that are working with these kids to get the younger ones to get them to understand what the program is all about to get them motivated to say hey i'm an o&m specialist like me with 30 years of experience who's never done that and i go wow i i wish i had a video someone showed me that in my second year or first year that i could have been thinking about my kids once again of who would be a potential candidate for this program and so I think that would, might be uh, something that you guys should do, is put together a video of successful vendors and so that those O&M specialists and TVIs can be watching that video nationwide. Good idea. And I think that in our agency, again, that when we do orientation for all new employees, it doesn't matter what position they're in, Marcellus, our BEP director, is called upon to present at every orientation and then together we developed a training for our staff that we gave to all the VR counselors and we, include our, we included our BEP consultants. We send it out in PowerPoint. We give them fact sheets. So we're trying to bring it to the forefront. It's a very, very important program. And we need to bring it to the forefront across the country. And we need to start making it an option. Thank you again for having me.
All right, that was fantastic, Elaine, Scott. Thank you both for a great presentation. Um, we're starting to roll up on break time, but I don't want anybody to bolt for the door just yet. Um, I just want to add a few words to this last presentation. Um, I would encourage the SLA folks to have continue this discussion when we have our break at noon. I'd also can, uh, ask the uh, committee chairs at their roundtable this afternoon to please take this up as well. This is, this is about our future, and I just encourage all operators to share their story with people. I can tell your story. You can tell it way better than I can. So I just wanted to add that little bit. Uh, artist, are we ready to do anything before we go on break? No. Not yet? Okay. So I, I think at this point... We'll take a 15-minute break. However, we do have a few baskets up front. If you folks would like to stop by and take a look at the state baskets, they are showing up. So, um, But we'll take a break till uh, 1035. Thank you. Welcome back. All right, moving on with our next presentation. Let's see if I can figure out where I'm at. Okay. Okay. Operations with Southern Food Service. Please welcome Walt Berry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, as Scott mentioned, I'm Walt Berry. I'm president of Southern Food Service Management, and uh, we are a Randolph Shepherd teaming partner. And we are based in Birmingham, Alabama. And I would like to first of all thank Nan and Artis and Scott and, the, and all of the RSBA board for putting on a great conference and, and allowing us to be a sponsor. Uh, we've been a proud sponsor of Sagebrush, so I am told, for the 18 years. <laughs> so uh, I have been involved for the last four or five years. Uh, before me, Mike Barclay, who many, many of you in this room may know, uh, was our president. He recently retired, um, and he's about six weeks into retirement, so I know everybody sends him the best for uh, a great retirement. But uh, I have been tapped to carry on the torch uh, in the Randolph Shepherd world and uh, pick up the work that Mike has done in, in this field for the better part of 20 years. Uh, we have been a Randolph Shepherd teaming partner for since 1999. Um, but I'm going to back up a little more and give those of you who don't know anything about our company a little history. Uh, we were founded in 1952, and it was a actual, actually a division of a retail chain of restaurants that was started in 1930. In the in, well, the 19, actually the late 1920s, and during World War II, they were these restaurants were contracted by the Navy uh, to feed the workers in the ship building the ships uh, for the uh, war effort. And when the war was over, the, the their contracting officers for the Navy moved on to GSA. And they carried those contacts forward and were uh, able to retain a few GSA government contracts. Uh, 
And in 1952, they decided to spin off that into a separate company, that contracting division. Uh, and along the way, before they spun it off, they picked up a few private industry contracts as well. So currently, uh, since 1952, we have been a, a government contractor as well as a private industry contractor, and our business is split about 50-50 in each, uh, in each sector. Uh, so we, we bring, currently, well, like I mentioned, our, our first Randolph-Shepard teaming partnership was in 1999, uh, and that was at uh, the Atlanta Federal Center, which we still operate with, with the uh, Georgia BEP and a, and a blind vendor there. Uh, Michael Lee was our first uh, teaming partner, or our first blind vendor that we teamed with. And from there, we picked up another contract with Georgia, and we've grown from there. We now operate with 10 states and have 14 teaming partnerships with licensed blind vendors. Um, don't be fooled by our name, Southern Food Service. We operate all over the country. Those 10 states, uh, although many of them are in the South, we do operate in New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Indiana, and we are currently working with uh, a couple of other states on projects uh, such as Maryland that we're currently not operating in, but we're hoping to be successful in uh, getting some, some Randolph Shepard business there also and getting some new contracts for the for the Maryland BEP. And we're also um, about to uh, embark on a, a teaming partnership in Texas for a new project there. So we do operate all over the country. One thing that's different about Southern than some of the other teaming partners or most of the other teaming partners that I know uh, that that come and sponsor these conferences is m most of them are only do Department of Defense military contracts. And we, we do military contracts. We operate for the, with the blind for the Army, Coast Guard, and Air Force, and um, we're hoping to branch out into some other uh, branches of the military also. But we also do because we have about half our businesses in private industry, and that is entails dining services at large corporate headquarters, uh, which involves employee dining, uh, which is a different animal, um, but the, the government also has a lot of business like that. Uh, and we are one of the only teaming partners that pursues that type of business with the bond vendors. And we have contracts, uh, as I mentioned, at the Atlanta Federal Center, which is basically just a large government office building. Um, we operate also for the Center for Disease Control uh, in Atlanta, which is, again, a large corporate campus-style environment. And because of our infrastructure in private industry, we bring a lot to the table, culinary skills, operation skills, and uh, a knowledge of the Randolph Shepard Teaming Partnership uh, model that we can bring into some of those contracts um, that 
other teaming partners do not have. And also, again, purchasing, uh, purchasing power, because we do buy over $60 million worth of food and related products a year uh, in our private industry and our government non-military government contracts. So we have per- a lot of purchasing power, and we bring a lot to the table in that environment as far as just culinary expertise and operating in that, in that market. So if there are any um, uh, vendors or state agent uh, administrators that are uh, directors that are there that know of contracts in their state that uh, maybe they th- didn't have a teaming partner that they thought they could pursue it with, uh, now you know. <laughs> we can do that. And uh, also a lot of states uh, have uh, entertainment uh, venues, and we operate in that sector too. We have three football stadiums that we operate, um, and those, those are some areas in a lot of the states have uh, Randolph Shepard-like laws that that are similar to randolph shepherd that do give priorities and um we do have some state contracts with the blind and uh and so those are some areas too that we could explore convention centers um amusement parks stadiums and other types of entertainment style industries so if, if you're aware of contracts and your state has a priority um, similar to, to the Randolph Shepard Act, uh, that might be something that you could uh, uh, you could approach me and see if uh, we could pursue together. Um, I want to switch uh, away from Southern for just a second and talk about teaming partner and contracting in general. Uh, since I've been involved uh, at the executive level in the in the Randolph Shepard teaming business. Uh, I have seen some uh, other teaming arrangements um, that I wanted to just kind of touch on, uh, and this is one thing that uh, this is general advice. So if, as you're selecting a teaming partner and contracting, one thing to keep in mind is that the, the the blind vendor is, should always be in control of the contract uh, in conjunction with the state. The teaming partner is there to s- operationally support the blind vendor in the state. And um, likewise, the, the blind vendor in the state should be, always have contractually have the right and the uh, responsibility to be the interact, inter, uh, intermer, intermediary between the contract and the government. Um, I have seen or heard of some teaming partners, partnership contracts with other teaming partners, not us, where uh, those things aren't really in place. And the, 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 the agreements actually said the blind vendor cannot talk to the government or that the state cannot talk to the government, that the blind vendor, I mean, that the teaming partner is the only, and that should never, that should never be the case. Um, Another very important thing that's come up in several contracts recently around the country is um, 
don't ever enter into a teaming agreement that does not have a clear exit clause and a clear term. Uh, in that, in particular, a, a, a clause that uh, you can change teaming partners if there's per, poor performance uh, by the teaming partner. Um, I have seen or heard of some contracts that where that does not. Is, there's not a, a, a clear exit uh, clause in there for the teaming part or for the uh, licensed blind vendor or the state, and therefore they feel stuck with their teaming partner, even though that teaming partner may not be performing well. So that's those are just some key points. Uh, another thing is, if you're going to team with the state uh, with a blind, uh, uh, I'm sorry, with a teaming partner. To go after a contract or to bid on a contract, that teaming agreement should be exclusive. That teaming partner should always agree not to put a bid with anybody else or but for himself. Uh, that there should be exclusive language in there with for exclusivity to bid with the licensed bond vendor in the state. Uh, and finally, always have an attorney. Uh, check it out and uh, always get an attorney to look at it and make sure that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed and an attorney that that looks out for the blind vendor or the state. Um, so those are just some general ideas I have and here again uh, I appreciate being here and look forward to meeting all of y'all. We'll have a booth set up at the uh, exhibit tomorrow, and look. I hope y'all all stop by and say hello, and get to meet everybody here. Thank you very much. Th thank you, Walt. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Mike, Mike, Mike left some awful big shoes behind for you to fill, and I think you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you much, yep. Walt. Uh, before you take off, I do have a, something I'd like to present to you here. Um, we've got a plaque here. It says Randolph Shepard, Vendors of America, Sagebrush BEP training conference um, to Southern Food Service Management Incorporated, uh, RSVA Dealer's Choice Sponsorship. And um, I'm just going to present this to you and say thank you, for, thank you for being here. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I would uh, like to introduce uh, Commissioner Mark Schultz to you. Uh, we are very fortunate. Um, He's from Nebraska, and as we all know, Pearl Van Zant was a very, very strong advocate for our blindness community as well as for the Randolph Shepherd program. Mark is following in her shoes, and we're really proud and privileged to have Mark here with us, and hopefully we can impress upon Mark the value that we can offer to society in the revenue program, but highway rest, rest area, military dining, the whole gambit, not only to the blindness community, but other disabilities that serve the military and serve the highway rest areas. Welcome, Mark, and thank you much. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to start off. Every time I come to Nevada, it reminds me of the time that I got married twice in the same day. Um, so I probably need to explain that a little bit. Um, my wife was living in D.C. at the time, and I was in Nebraska. And when we decided to get married, our families were both, one was uh, on the East Coast. My family was in central Nebraska. 
And so we decided to have a destination wedding. So we got married in Lake Tahoe and we found a little chapel there that um, we um, didn't realize at the time created a problem because we got the marriage license in Nevada and the chapel happened to be in California. And so when we were married in the chapel, we went through the whole ceremony and the pastor says, okay, now we have to make it official. And I'm going, what? And um, he took us out to the parking lot, which happened to be on the Nevada side. And we repeated the whole ceremony. So I'd like to say I got married twice in the same day. There was a brief moment where either one of us could have changed our mind, I guess. But uh, so um, let me just share a little bit about myself. I started out working for a Center for Independent Living. I had a degree in architecture, and I specialized in barrier-free design. I did that for quite a while, and that was my first exposure to working with people with disabilities. Up until that point, I really hadn't had much um, of an opportunity to have that experience. And as I learned more about um, the um, requirements to make things accessible, we started getting into technology, and that led me into being the director of the Assisted Technology Program in Nebraska, for 18 years. Um, from there, I went to become the director of the VR program for about 10 years, and then became the deputy commissioner in which I had vocational rehabilitation, but also special education, career and adult ed, some federal programs, uh, Title I programs, and it gave me a great opportunity to really look across those programs and see how they could coordinate and work better. Um, in terms of working uh, collaboratively and creating efficiencies and effectiveness with the services that were being provided. So I was nominated then to become the RSA commissioner, and I waited 500 days to be confirmed. People said, well, how could you wait 500 days? You're really very patient. So I've shared this story with a few people, but I don't think many of you have heard it. But when um, you're nominated for a position like that, what do you do? You go to the paper, right? And you're looking for your name and your picture. And you think it's a big deal. So I went to my hometown newspaper and I was looking at it and um, didn't see anything on the front page. Um, kept paging through it. And there it was on about page six or seven. And as I was looking at it, there was my picture and there was a little story about the nomination. Um, and I opened the complete paper up to both pages and realized there were a lot of pictures and a lot of stories on that page because it was on the obituary page. (laughs) So so I'd like to say when you see, you wake up in the morning, you see your picture on the obituary page, you're just glad for any extra day that comes, let alone 500 more days. Um, So, but I, I hope what that expresses is my commitment to the program and to people with disabilities and employment and and how important that is, that I was willing to wait 500 days to become the RSA commissioner. So 2020, what a great time to be the commissioner because it's the 100th anniversary of the VR program. And we intend to celebrate and have a year-long celebration. But it creates an opportunity for a lot of things. And one of those is elevating the visibility of the VR program, but that also includes the business enterprise programs and the Randolph Shepherd program because we're going to do a series of events across uh, throughout the next year. And those will include a theme for each month. We're looking at special events, activities, um, but most importantly, we're looking at success stories that we can share about the program and the services being provided. 
And that includes the Entrepreneurial Business Enterprise Program. I expect that we're going to have some success stories that we can share as a part of that process. So elevating the visibility of the program is one of the things that's important to me. And it's important because the Randolph Shepard and Business Enterprise Program is part of the continuum of career pathways. So if you think about it, and I was really appreciated of the speakers um, that were uh, previously sharing what they were doing around transition and reaching out to students and creating opportunities, um, information, creating awareness around the entrepreneurial pathway that business enterprise programs uh, present for students with disabilities. Um, And I think that's particularly important nowadays that those skills that they can learn through these programs can transfer to even greater things in the future. So just to give you a couple of um, data points around the success of the program, um, staff were able to pull some things together for me. And the latest data set that I have is from fiscal year 2017. 2018 should be out shortly, but this is the best information I can provide right now. But the gross sales of all vending facilities for that for fiscal year 2017 was $664.7 million. That's a tremendous financial impact on the country. Total vendor earnings, $120.6 million. And the total number of vendors was 1,821 across the country. The average vendor income, and again, this is average, $66,240.65. So it's a successful program as demonstrated by the numbers. And so, but I also understand, um, but first I think before I get into that, I want to thank that that success, those, the data that I share is really due to the tremendous success of the vendors, um, the state licensing agencies and the elected committee members working together. Um, I think it shows the partnership and the strength of the partnership as a result um, and and the success. But in spite of that, I also know that there are a few concerns about the work that's happening across the country. Also, a few concerns about the way that RSA has been managing the program. Um, I came into this and I was the director of a general VR program. And and so I've been educated uh, quite often by many of you, and I appreciate that, uh, about the Randolph Shepard program. And I encourage you to keep reaching out and educating me, because the more I know, the more I hear, the better off we're going to be in terms of making informed decisions about the direction we need to go with the program, the support that we can provide to you. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the concerns in the backlog and the arbitration requests in the rules approvals process and the monitoring technical assistance, just to share with you what we've been doing and much of this has been occurring since October of this year. So it hasn't happened over a very long period of time, but at least there's action that's starting to occur now. And so I'm sharing this with you as I, as I hope to develop some credibility for us as we move forward. So as we start to work together in, in a vision for the future, that we have a great partnership in doing that as we go forward. So in the last year to help address the backlog, RSA has added three new employees. So, Corrine Weidenthal, who's the chief of the service programs unit. Christine Grassman, who specializes in conflict resolution, and I'll talk a little more about why that's important. Jim McCarthy, who's the arbitration coordinator. And I think many of you know Jesse Hartle. Uh, He's going to continue to serve as the program specialist on the team. And his primary responsibilities include the analysis of RSA 15, um, reviewing state rules, and coordinating communication with our general counsel, 
the SLAs and other stakeholders. So in addition, I think one of the things that was shared with you probably last year and the year before that was uh, the issues with the Office of General Counsel um, and the delays in reviewing rules and other parts of our process and moving those things forward. Well, I'd like to say I'm very happy that they are adding an additional new attorney who's going to be working closely with the Randolph Shepard program. And in fact, that person is hired. And I can't remember her last name. I know her first name is Jennifer, but she has started and she is going to be brought up to speed. And we're going to be helping to move those cases along very quickly, I think, in expediting the process. We're also making progress on the arbitration and rules backlog by closely tracking those actions. We have a tracker that is looking at where we're at within the process. Now, we always had a tracker, but I don't think we had paid as much attention to that as we needed to. So we're able to monitor that a little closer, and we're making sure that we're working with all the parties involved to be more on top of the communication. When I was looking at that, I know we have some cases that are very old, several years, in fact, and no movement on them. And when I asked why, it's because we hadn't heard anything. So why didn't we call? Why weren't we more proactive in that process? And that was my question. And I, I'm not sure why I didn't get a good response. But that's an expectation that we're creating now, is that if we're not hearing, let's reach out and let's keep this process moving. We want to keep working. It's our responsibility as much as it is yours to keep that process going forward. So I would also encourage you, if you haven't heard anything, reach out to us. Be proactive. Let us know that you haven't heard anything and you have an expectation that it needs to keep moving forward. So here's the progress we have made since October of last year, of 2019. So first of all, we have acknowledged, we have acknowledged all filed requests. We've had one case that's reached an agreement on their own regarding the settlement of their dispute. And that was really as a part of the conflict resolution process. Um, there are four cases in which a request for arbitration has been withdrawn. Convening letters have been sent in two cases, and another one's going to be sent out this week. Arbitration panels have been established for four cases. Arbitration hearings have been conducted in three cases and a fourth scheduled by the end of this month. And we've approved three state rule packages just in the last week, and we're working closely with our Office of General Counsel on the remaining eight. We've provided feedback for two additional states, and we're waiting for their responses. So there's movement, and I'm not sure that you've heard that type of movement in the past. So it doesn't mean we've, we're caught up yet. We're still behind, right? But we're continuing to make progress, and I expect with this, the additional staff and with the additional council that we're going to be able to continue to move quicker and to be able to catch up and stay caught up. So I want to talk just a little bit about the new strategy that uh, we're using to help with this backlog, um, and that's the conflict resolution, because I think that provides us with another pathway around those arbitration requests. So, as I mentioned, Christine Grassman is our conflict resolution specialist, and that's really to help us in working with you prior to going to the full arbitration process. So it's a way for us to avoid that stress, the extra time, that financial burden, and the uncertainty of that arbitration process by helping work together with both um, those who are filing and those who are representing the SLAs in terms of the conflict resolution issues. Um, so as I mentioned, we've had our first case that was successfully resolved through the process. Um, 
I hope that's some validation. We have another one that's currently going through, and we'll hear whether or not the proposed resolution is accepted this month. Um, And we have a couple other parties that are discussing whether or not they want to attempt this process as they work to settle their issues. So I would hope that if you have concerns or issues, that that's the first step in the process that you consider. We really want to offer that as a service and, and propose that you make use of that as often as possible to help resolve conflicts before they have to go through a more tedious process that takes a lot of time. So let's talk about the monitoring technical assistance. I know you've um, expressed some concerns about RSA starting to do some monitoring. Others of you have said, well, when are you going to do monitoring? When we put it off because of the backlog in the process. There just wasn't enough staff resources in or, in, 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 that enabled us to be able to do the monitoring. But we think we can start to begin that process now. And we're really doing it, working with several states as sort of a pilot so that we can start to uh, provide more meaningful and timelier monitoring and technical assistance to states as we move forward. So what we learned through this process will be used to ad- adapt that as we go forward. So what we visited Maryland in November, and we're slated to visit Georgia in May with a team from our State Monitoring and Program Improvement Division. So we're referring to these as site visits and not necessarily monitoring visits, although we're looking at compliance a little bit, but we're also trying to learn from that process as well about what we can do to improve our communication with states and vendors through this process. Um, We're trying to do this um, on-site visit over the course of two days, Um, but the process um, allows us to meet with VR and blind agency directors, the BEP director, and staff to include business counselors, fiscal staff, trainers, and also reviewing case files. So that all happens on the first day. The second day, then, we meet with members of the elected committee, and we hold interviews with them and other vendors. Um, So we also want to be able to visit facilities. And in the case of Maryland, we were able to visit two facilities on that same day. So it really helps us inform us in that process. So prior to beginning the on-site process, we will be sending out a self-assessment in advance. So we asked the SLA to complete that prior to the visit so um, that we can request any other supporting documents, um, including policies and procedures that will help us when we come out to do the on-site visit. So once we've done that, we are sending back a brief report, a draft report to the state licensing agency so that they can review it for any missing or incorrect information, and then we'll finalize that. Um, But as I said, we're really considering Maryland and we'll consider Georgia's to be our pilot visits. Um, And some of the things that we learned actually on the first visit already is that we need to talk to more vendors. Um, That really is an important part of the process. So we hope to also conduct phone interviews in advance of the visit. Um, That will allow us to use our time more effectively when we're on site, but then also to continue to um, have on-site vendors, uh, on-site visits with the vendors as well. So that's the monitoring. The other thing that we're doing is looking at the technical assistance that we've been providing. And the first example of that is around prior approval. And I know that was a big issue um, when that was first introduced. And so we did issue guidance on that, interim guidance, and we're going to be publishing that in the Federal Register, so you'll have an opportunity to comment on that. Um, But within that interim guidance, what we are proposing is that 
the state VR agencies include the equipment purchases, the proposed equipment purchases for that fiscal year in an aggregate way, in an aggregate format. So you're not having to make individual requests that you're projecting what those will be. And by doing it in the aggregate, you can get them um, approved at the same time and not have to go through that process. So that will help you with more timelier purchases of that equipment if you can get that approved in the aggregate in advance. Um, it doesn't include the costs related to the renovation or alteration of facilities that has to go through a separate process because those, that, those are done through contract typically. So um, we did what we could in looking at prior approval and making the changes that we could to help facilitate the process for you. But I know there are still issues out there and so part of me being here today is hopefully for you to identify some of those that I need to be paying attention to. And I think one of the first ones that will probably come up is around the dining facility attendant, um, full, food, food, excuse me, full food service issues for military dining facilities. That's a big one. And as you know, there are a couple of court cases hanging out there. So I just want to tell you right now, there's not a lot I can share about that because of the pending court cases. But it has our attention. We're working on it. We're actively pursuing what we can behind the scenes to help move this forward to some decision. You need clarity in that, we need clarity. So we're doing what we can in that regard. The last thing I really wanna talk about is just the general efforts we're making to improve our communication, not just with vendors and state licensing agencies, but just VR programs in general. Uh, we're really trying to reach out and have quarterly calls to keep them updated as to the activities that are going on within RSA. Um, and that includes the events, includes policies and procedure changes so that you're aware of it and you're not waiting on that information, that we're doing it in a proactive way. So I think just um, last week, the Randolph Shepherd team held their first SLA director's phone call. And on that, they um, uh, discussed a number of things. There were um, questions that the directors and vendors had that were addressed, I believe. Um, the um, next week, I think we have a meeting scheduled with the elected committee members and other vendors. Um, so again, trying to keep those lines of communication open. Um, we've been talking about, uh, I think on the first one, we did have three BEP, uh, BEP directors that were sharing information about their successes, um, the challenges, active participation of the elected committee members and other vendors, and upward mobility training. Those are topics that were covered in the first meeting just last week. So so the other thing that I'm doing, trying to improve communication, is meeting with as many groups as possible. So that's why I'm here today, um, to begin the conversation, to hear from you about how we can support your work. So this is your opportunity. That's why I'm here. So as I said earlier, I didn't have the Randolph Shepard program under me because I was over the general VR agency in Nebraska. Um, but I've been learning a lot. I have a lot more to learn. So again, this is another opportunity for you to keep educating me, telling me what those issues, what your concerns are. Um, I appreciate those of you that have reached out to me. I, this is really not a shy group. <laughs> um, I think I've learned that over the last few months. So I, I'd like to take this opportunity with what's left. I think I have a few minutes left, right? Um, to take the time to um, hear your concerns. If you have questions, see if I'm able to respond to those. Um, and just in general, whatever you'd like to share with me. So, so let's begin. Who'd like to go first? All right. Okay, I see a few hands out there. Good. 
Okay, I got a mic coming out. Anybody? There we go. Got a question right here. Okay. Good morning for what little time's left. Um, up until 2009, we were able to find out what the national statistical average for blind vendors' income was through what is known as an RS, RSIM 15. But then you did away with it, not you, but the agency did away with giving that information out on the IMs. And I was wondering, um, contacting Jesse Hartle um, seems to be, he answers the phone more than I think, or it doesn't give him enough time to do the work he needs to do. Is there a simpler way to get this statistical information? Yeah. So data is a big issue for me across the board, not just with Randolph Shepard programs, but with the VR programs in general. So it's something I'm looking at. I don't have the answers for you right now, but um, I'll be glad to look into it. I was able to share with you, as I said earlier, data from 2017. It's not very current, um, but we need to be more transparent about our data. Um, so something that I'm, I'm considering as we go forward. So thank you for bringing that up. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yep, wave your arms and then I can... Oh, right here. There we go. Okay. Yeah, I'm a chairman for the state of Louisiana. I have two questions. One is you were talking about settlements. Uh, how do you settle when the state is hiring outside attorneys who are getting paid by the hour and don't want to settle? And the second question is, who determines what committee members or vendors you all talk to on these conference calls? Yeah, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear the question at all. Okay, one more time. Speak right into Yes. Okay, first question is, when you were talked about settlements, uh, how can you have a settlement when the state is hiring outside attorneys with our money to fight us, and they don't want to settle because they're getting paid by the hour, and the second question is, who determines what committee members or vendors you speak to on these conference calls? Okay. I was able to hear the first question, so let me answer that one first. Um, and, and, and honestly, I don't have a great answer for you, right? Um, so you're making me aware of the problem. It's something I can take back and we, we can look at. But as I understand the conflict resolution process, it gives you the opportunity to, to do it in a more informal fashion, than to go through um, the arbitration process, which would require or has the state attorneys actively involved. So uh, we're developing those procedures. I think those will be out. That'll give you an opportunity to take a look at that and see whether or not it addresses your concerns. So this, He's asking about outside attorneys. Outside attorneys? Right. I understand, I understand what you're saying. So... Um, I just don't have enough information at this point that I can respond to that because I don't know how pervasive or anything that is. But thank you for bringing that up. Um, I will take that back and I will talk to staff about that concern. I know his other question too was um, who is being picked as um, people to be on, on the conference call, other uh, operators? How are they determining who is going to be on the conference call? On the conference calls? Yes. So that goes out to the listserv that we have. So if you're not on that listserv, contact Jesse. Make sure you get on there. So when we're reaching out to the vendors, you're included in that. But that's how we've been doing it is through that listserv. Hello, Rob Essenberg from Michigan. I'm the chair of the Elected Operators Committee. We've been trying for eight years 
to get the state to move on changing our rules, and they won't budge. They keep saying, well, we're looking at it, we're, we're thinking about it, and, well, we got to review it, we have other things to do, so a myriad of excuses. Because um, there's things in our rules that need to be changed due to changing circumstances in the micro- marketplace. Our rules specifically outline uh, deductions we can take as business expenses, and they're sticking to that list. And one of the new business expenses that's come up that's getting very expensive is credit card charges. I personally pay over $12,000 a year in credit card charges and cannot take it off my BEP report. So as many of you know, the determination of those rules are a state decision, right, and working with working together on that. So that's part of what we intend to look at when we do the monitoring and come out and work with states is to look at that uh, active participation and so to determine whether or not that's occurring and what technical assistance might be provided to the parties involved. Hi, this is Laurie. And for the gentleman that talked about uh, the getting on the conference call, is he talking about... I don't mean to turn my back to you, but I want to face him. Are you talking about whether or not the conference call is between a settlement in an arbitration or pending litigation? So, I, so I'll try to – I was responding. I was believing that he was talking about the uh, updates that the Randall Shepherd staff are doing with those uh, SLA directors, vendors, and others across the country. So I think that's what he's referring to. Yes. That's with the state attorney. And if you're the vendor that's involved in that litigation, as far as I know, the state attorney has a requirement to consult with you and let you know you can be present if you want to, or you can waive or decline that. So you need to call your agency to call the state attorney because that's the only way you're going to be heard. I do that with all of the vendors that our agency represents. And if they want to be there, we, t- we make a telephone conference call, we prep before, and they can talk or ask me questions, and I can be their mouthpiece. That's how we handle it in Hawaii. As for the rules, you've mentioned Jesse Hartle. He's very busy, very busy after Deanna Jones left. Jennifer's kind of new, but my understanding in priority that they handle things is when they are litigants in a lawsuit, that's their first priority, and they're getting slammed across the nation um, with DOD cases. Second comes arbitration hearings, and then they convene a panel, and then off you go once you do the hearing and let them know what the result and decision is, And the third priority is rules. So they're averaging, even if your state agency completes the rules, two to four years before RSA gets it back to to the state. And so a lot of things can change. But may I suggest that the gentleman concerned about the rules, you you have to actively participate with your agency because it's required. It's required. So if you're unhappy with your agency, let them know and draft or amend the rules the way you want, give it to the agency, and give them a deadline. If they don't do it, 
then you have other recourse. But for us, we have a problem getting active participation on that. Everybody talks about it, but nobody will sit down and submit a vendor amendment or meet with us so that we can discuss amendments. So that becomes a glitch. But you know, from a vendor's point of view, they might blame the agency or the, or the state's attorney. But even if you get the rules done, it's still taking two to four years because the priority is not high when um, uh, Jesse folks are defending themselves in a lawsuit. That takes first. Everything falls down, down the line. So let I me just speak helps. specifically to the rules approvals because I, that was true. Yes, two to four years. I'm sorry? Uh, the rules approval process, that was true, that it was taking two to four years, in some cases even longer. Yes. So think, what we've been looking at is the complexity of those changes and is, is there a way to expedite the process because not every rule change requires the full review of OGC. Let me tell you how. I'm a little more liberal and I'm not afraid to go to court. So what I've told our committee is if you can get active participation with us or, and the agency to do an amendment, air it to the community, the blind vendor community, put it on the agenda for a meeting, and you can do an interim policy pending the rules. At the same time, when you do the interim policy, you find out all the glitches, and then you can amend again so that even if, it, if your rules have gone up, they, Jesse folks don't care if you sent another second amendment or whatever and just say, replace what we have with this. Now that we've done the system and the interim po process, mm -hmm. you know, that works. And if the committee votes to allow it, it gets difficult during a grievance against the agency because they had a chance to discuss it or amend it again by putting it on an agenda. I hope that helps. I don't know. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, my expectation is that rule changes do not take two to four years. It takes longer. Well, we're going to change but, that. We're yeah. in the process of changing that. I think that. one state's been waiting 10 years. One state has been waiting 10 years. Yeah. And it's because they're busy. I, I, I get it. You know, I have one other question. Sorry, Scott. Now that I have the mic, did you mention the other three states that are in arbitration, or are you not allowed to say? The other three states that are... Yeah, you mentioned there are three states pending Yeah, I don't have the states identified. Okay, because we're one. Hawaii's one. Okay. Um, and I know of Texas and Kansas, but I didn't know if there was anything else. Oh, you, uh, yeah. With the DOD, you mean the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the DOD being... Yeah, those are public records, so Kansas and Texas, and yeah. Hey, Mark, uh, Randy from Oregon, and again, thank you for being here. Um, I think improving communications in this fragmented program, you know, we have sometimes sides, you know, we have RSA, and we have the SLA, and we have NCSAB, and, you know, NABM, and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I think improving communications and trying to get those persons to the table to work through 
Um, many of the pro problems is great. I believe RSA extending out and encouraging communication through the teleconferences is wonderful. Um, you know, the elephant in the room that's been talked about for a million years is active participation, and we'll continue to talk about it for another million years, in my opinion, unless it can actually have the support somehow through RSA of the Elected Committee of Blind Vendors participation actually meaning something. You coming from special education, I'm sure you're aware with um, inclusion and integration and the consumer's choice and those type of things. So if RSA, and I had a, uh, I had a conversation last week with um, the RSA team, and one of the things that was a little concerning is that, um, you know, I'll summarize it, but, well, when there's a conflict with active participation, we leave that up to the states. And knowing that the states are the um, administrative authority, what I hope, and I think others hope, is that RSA somehow can make and encourage active participation to mean something. It can't simply be written in the act or written in state statute and, you know, not have an impact. So, you know, I don't know exactly how that is, but please keep that on your radar. I believe that many times is the root of many of the problems, um, you know, the voice of the committee as intended and amended in 74 um, is intended to, again, have an impact and mean something and not just be placated or overlooked. So if you have any ideas on how to do that, either through, you know, some sort of memoranda or directive or, you know, however that would be... Uh, Please, uh, please keep that mindful. Thank you. I have a, I have a question on active participation also. I understand that the uh, the I just would like to understand why the RSA's position is that the state SLAs are determined what active participation. When to me, active participation is active participation. It doesn't really need a lot of definition. But I found out the hard way on our state, the best way to do is to do your best to get along, and if you can't get along, at least get as close as you can, because I think that's how we do it here. It works pretty decent. Hi, my name's Tracy Hout. I'm from Idaho. I'm the chairperson. Um, I just have a question. When we talk about internal policies, I'm sorry, my phone is um, connected to the microphone, so it was repeating what I said, so I apologize. But the question is, we have an internal policy at Boise, but unfortunately, the internal policy is conflicted with our rules and regulations for the state. Um, for example, our rules and regulations for the state is that we can have audits. That's fine. But it says either or, external auditors or internal audits by the BEB specialist. Well, I mean, supervisor, excuse me. But they have created an internal policy that says they're going to do two external audits, plus all vendors will be internally audited through the year. So it's making a conflict 
of interest because it's not coinciding with our rules and regulations. What do you recommend? So I don't know if you've made anyone in RSA aware of the issue. Have have you talked to anyone in RSA yet? Well, that would be the first step. But I think a lot of these issues in terms of the conflicts you're having at the state level, um, we're hoping to start to uncover and start to provide technical assistance as we begin that monitoring process. Um, That's one way to do it. I think, as Randy suggested, in looking at active participation, whatever guidance we can provide around what that means to states would also help in this process. So those, I assure you it's on the radar. We're looking at those things. Um, I don't have anything concrete to share with you right now, but hopefully I will be um, in the future. So I just want to thank you all for the opportunity to be here today. I appreciate it. Let's keep the conversation going. Feel free to email me any other questions or concerns you might have. So thank you all. Thank you, Mark, for taking your valuable time to come and uh, give us an update on what's happening. And I really appreciate uh, your interest in improving our program as well as all blindness um, issues across the country. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Is Katrina in the audience? Okay. Well, Your cruise director again here. We are going to continue to move on. Um, Thank you so much for that last presentation. And um, now we have next up Katrina McDonald. She'll be bringing us up to date on what's happening nationally. So I will turn it over to Katrina. I'm delighted that Carla Servan is here on behalf of the NCSAB Executive Committee as our Randolph Shepard co-chairs were not able to come. So he is bringing a few words from the uh, leadership of NCSAB and then I will look forward to joining you. Thank you. She's a little shorter than me, but let me put this up here. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. Yes. I bring, I bring greetings from NCSAB. Every year we meet twice a year, uh, one time in Bethesda close to DC, and the other time somewhere in the south where the climate is nicer during the fall. But every year, every time we meet, we have sessions about Randall Shepard program. We listen to your concerns. I'm a director of state agency. We are working very hard on strengthening Randall Shepper, both also at the state level and national level. And as new directors come to board, we also educate them. And we welcome you to, to come to the NCSAB conferences where we like to hear from our consumers. I think one of the best ways state directors can work is with a true partnership, like you were talking about, active participation. If some folks want to fight and get into power struggle, and when you do that, all you do is just waste time. But if you do communicate, and that goes also for the SLA, there are several SLA folks here. If you do communicate, things move forward, and that's what NCSAB is about. So we would like to hear from you and welcome you to come. 
I would like to just embarrass a little bit. Mark Schultz, still, he's still here? Is Mark here? No, he left. Well, I embarrassed him anyway. <laughs> now, as he, he said he's from Nebraska. I came to Nebraska in 1998 when he was the director of the Assistive Technology Partnership. And one of the jobs that I was tasked for was to find jobs for blind teenagers uh, during the summer. And I keep scratching my head, where do I find jobs for blind people? As you guys know, it's not that easy, especially for teenagers. And I called Mark. I never met him. I just give him a call and, and say if he will be willing to give a blind person a chance. And he said, sure. You know, no hesitation. And I just like that guy from the beginning. So I think we have an excellent uh, RSA commissioner and or right now um, assistant secretary for education. So I just wanted to say that to you guys too. Okay. Sorry, I expanded myself a little. Sorry, juggling the mic here. Good morning. I think it's still morning. Oh, good. <laughs> and. And I'm going to try to be quick and efficient because I'm standing between you and lunch. But hello, it's so lovely to be here with you again. I always enjoy seeing so many familiar faces. It is great to come home and, uh, as I was saying hello to Bob Humphreys, he said he was happy to be back in the fold of Randolph Shepard. Uh, Bob was one of the folks who coached me as I was learning about Randolph Shepard. It's great to see Bob, and it's great to see you. In addition to many wonderful friends in the audience, I'm also noticing a number of new faces. So for those of you who I have not had a chance to meet yet, um, my name is Katrina McDonald, and I am the policy advisor for Randolph Shepard for the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind. I've been doing that um, for about 15 years now. I can always track exactly how long it's been because, as the NCSAV folks know, I was very, very pregnant with my daughter when I began work for NCSAV. She is now 15 years old a freshman in high school. Tonight she is starting on the varsity basketball team and I will be missing the game because I'm here with you. So if you ever questioned my commitment to Randolph Shepard, now you know I will be getting the download after the game over the phone. So about three o'clock Vegas time, if you could send up a little prayer for the Panthers and for Kalen, I would be really grateful. <laughs> yes, 3 o'clock Pacific time, 6 o'clock uh, Eastern time. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like when I come to see you, I am often here sharing my worry list. You know, it's, it's sort of therapy. I come and tell you all the things that are going on in Washington that make me worry because they are threats to Randolph Shepard. And the good news is that while those threats have not gone away, right now, this year, it feels like some of those external threats have receded a little bit. 
And I know that you could write my list of worries probably just as well as I could, partly because many of you hear me talk about those things. So what are some of the worries that we have been uh, monitoring, grappling with, fighting off over the last couple of years? Who wants to throw out one general topic? Rest areas. Great. Let's talk about where rest areas are right now. So you might or might not have heard that yesterday uh, the president presented his budget proposal to Congress. And as part of that, he laid out his vision for infrastructure, which is our perennial bugaboo and have to always monitor those proposals for what they might do for rest areas. And the good news is that for the first time in a while, that proposal is silent on rest areas. That doesn't mean that the threat to rest areas has gone away, but for the first time in a long time, the president did not explicitly propose funding his infrastructure, infrastructure package with rest area commercialization. So what did he say? He proposed a $1 trillion investment over the next 10 years to be funded by some unspecified mechanism. It's the unspecified mechanism that makes me a little worried. Uh, the rest area commercialization threat has not completely disappeared, but he didn't write into the budget proposal that that was how he expected to fund it. So it's small progress, but it's progress nonetheless. Perhaps more important progress is that in both the House and the Senate, the transportation committees are in the middle now of writing their transportation reauthorizations. They're looking at five-year packages, not 10-year packages. And in the Democratic-controlled House and the Republican-controlled Senate, right now, at least for the moment, Nobody is proposing to fund transportation and infrastructure with rest area commercialization. What an accomplishment, and that is terrific news. Does, yes, absolutely, let's applaud that. Now, does that mean that we can rest on our laurels and just go about our jobs and stop talking about this? Oh, no. And I guarantee that if you're kind enough to have me back again next year, we will probably be talking about rest area commercialization next year as well. And it is important that we all continue to talk about rest area commercialization between now and February 2021, because if transportation moves forward, and this is one of the few areas where there might be able to be bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans in a presidential election year, it's going to be really hard to fund. And we need to make sure that all of the decision makers understand the implications for blind vendors if they can't find any other politically appealing pay-for and they go back to rest area commercialization because it's the easiest way to pay for infrastructure. We need them to understand the impact on blind entrepreneurs, and we need them to understand that it will not be politically painless for them if they adopt an approach to paying for infrastructure that's going to put blind entrepreneurs out of work. But at least right now, the signs are encouraging that we may dodge this bullet. What's another perennial item on my worry list? DOD. DOD, I hear. Absolutely. So this is the first time in about 
15 years of my doing Randolph Shepard issues, that the Department of Defense is not drafting regulations that would essentially shut Randolph Shepard out of military troop dining. And that is a great accomplishment and really good progress. As with many things in Randolph Shepard, two steps forward, one step back, So when I saw you last year and we were talking about military troop dining, there were some court cases working their way through the system and a couple of arbitrations around applying the Randolph-Shepard priority to DFA-only troop dining contracts, contracts that did not include full food service. And Randolph-Shepard won almost all of those. And that was a fabulous, exciting accomplishment. And then we had one adverse decision in Kansas. And now those other decisions that we won, including a big one in Texas, um, the DOD has gone back to court and is appealing those decisions based on the adverse ruling in Kansas. So more to come there. Um, but we were really pleased that we got some of those decisions and particularly pleased that the letter from Secretary DeVos to then-Chairman Sessions um, seems to be paving the way for a more collaborative approach with DOD. Fingers crossed. What other bugaboos are always on our list? We've hit rest areas. We've hit DOD. I'm sorry? Veterans facilities, yes, and GSA and Postal Service and some of those recalcitrant agencies that are always challenging. I can't um, tell you any really good news on the national front with the VA. I know that there are some individual states that have had success with local veterans uh, administrations. And one thing about the VA is the folks in D.C., the central office, they think that they control what happens in local VAs, but they don't. It's really always under the control of the local uh, VISN chief. And even when I was working for a member of Congress who was pretty senior on the committee that controlled the VA's money, we learned the hard way that in the VA, it's the local people who run the shots, and they don't really care what anybody in Washington tells them, whether it's a member of Congress or their own agency. And so in places where vendors and state licensing agencies have been able to develop good working relationships with the VA, um, that is moving forward more smoothly. There are two things that are worth talking about that are coming out of the national office at GSA and the Postal Service. So the first thing is that GSA is updating its template permit. I don't know if anybody here remembers the last time that GSA updated their permit and sent it around to their regional offices with the suggestion that their new permit should replace all of the other permits that were in place. But that template permit, which went around uh, maybe five or six years ago, maybe longer ago than that. Now I sort of lose track. It had a lot of provisions in it that violated the Randolph-Shepard Act. 
And in particular, one of the things that GSA encouraged its regional folks to do was replace contracts or permits that had no endpoint, no time limit, with permits that had time limits, usually five years. And that is inconsistent with the Randolph-Shepard priority, and NCSAB's advice to our member agencies was don't sign any of those permits. But GSA was presenting those permits to Randolph-Shepard programs as if you didn't have a choice and you had to sign them. Well, we've made some progress since then. So GSA is now working on a new template permit that they plan to send around to all of their regional offices. And instead of just having it land at those regional offices and potentially cause problems, GSA is actually consulting with the Rehabilitation Services Administration this time around on the content of those new permits so that if there are things in the draft permit, and I can tell you now that there are, that conflict with the Randolph-Shepard Act, um, RSA and some state agencies will have an opportunity to have input into that draft and um, hopefully to eliminate those problems before you at state agencies and as vendors start having to deal with it. The reason that I tell you this is, A, so you know that those changes are coming down the pike, but also the draft permit has been circulated to regional GSA offices. And I'm starting to hear that there are some people who misunderstood and thought that the draft is the final document. And so if you are in a GSA facility or have a vendor in a GSA facility and you are being presented with a new permit and told that you have to sign it, don't do that because the permit is a draft and we're working on some fixes to potential problems in that document. We're also starting to see some additional turnover with postal service facilities. So I think many of you know that National Vending has had a contract with the Postal Service, and the way that National Vending's agreement works is they have to offer facilities when their agreements are up to Randolph Shepard first, and any facilities that an SLA does not claim for the Randolph Shepard program, um, National Vending then gets a commission to go out and find a third-party provider. The national agreement between the Postal Service and National Vending ended at the end of like the third quarter last year, and the Postal Service was kind of hoping that Randolph Shepard would actually take over all of the postal facilities and they wouldn't need a contract with National Vending anymore. Unfortunately, as you know, the setup of some postal service facilities is uneconomic or those facilities are in places where we don't have vendors. And while at this point a really substantial percentage of all postal service facilities are being managed by Randolph Shepard vendors, there are still quite a few that are not. So the Postal Service has renewed its agreement with National Vending. And now that that has happened, National Vending is starting to notify state agencies of facilities that are up and available. Um, State agencies can go out and evaluate those facilities, see if they're appropriate for Randolph Shepard vendors and whether they might be added to a route or given to 
a blind entrepreneur. And again, many of the facilities are not economic because they are cafeteria format or other formats that just don't earn enough money. And not only do SLAs not want them, but actually National Vending is having some trouble um, finding other third-party vendors when we turn them down. The important thing for you to know as vendors and for SLAs to know is that many of those cafeterias are in that format because of the request of employees. And in fact, the Postal Service is not really any more interested in the cafeteria in its current format than blind entrepreneurs would be because it's so hard to staff and maintain those cafeterias with the quality and the hours that employees want. The Postal Service actually welcomes feedback from the Randolph Shepard program that we can't make this facility work as a cafeteria, but if you changed it to a different format, like a micromarket or a cafe, something with more modest offerings and uh, a lower staff burden or requirement, the Postal Service is often happy to get that feedback from Randolph Shepard and to use that in its conversations with employees as leverage to try to switch out those facilities and make them more workable. So NCSAB has been advising our state agencies, if you need to turn down the facility in its existing format because a blind vendor couldn't make money there, it's important in that communication to let the Postal Service know if the Postal Service were to to decide to use a different format and to renovate and switch out that facility, Randolph Shepard would be interested in taking another look at it and would potentially be willing to service that facility. So if you um, are, I know we've got elected committee folks in the room, state agency folks, NCSAB has been providing this advice and counsel to our members for about a year now, and it's something that's important for vendors to be keeping an eye on as well. So it's um, really encouraging the moves that are being made at RSA to provide some more assistance to stay, get on top and stay on top of rules changes, arbitrations, um, the litigation, all of these things that have been pending at RSA for far too long. And poor Jesse has been working alone in the salt mines for far too long. And we're really excited that there have been some fabulous new staff added uh, to the team. It's interesting that one of the first things they're doing with additional uh, manpower is these site visits. And one thing that the commissioner did not talk about, um, but that is becoming more and more a focus by RSA, including in these site visits, is upward mobility. As we all know, there's a requirement for upward mobility training, and all states offer it at some level or other. Um, but RSA is starting to take a closer look at the trainings that are offered as part of upward mobility and trying to collect some data about their effectiveness. And there's not a lot of data out there. So each year, NCSAB works on a white paper 
through the spring and summer on an issue that is of importance to the Randolph Shepherd program. And then at our November conference, we present that white paper to our membership. Um, three years ago, the white paper was on model promotion rules, and we put together a committee that included blind entrepreneurs and SLA staff and worked together to develop a model promotion policy that we made available to SLAs. It's on the NCSAB website. Two years ago, we spent a lot of time putting together information about micromarkets and talking with states about some of the exciting things that they're doing with micromarkets, explaining what they are, how they work, what configurations are available and possible. That white paper is also on the NCSAB website if you're interested in taking a look at it. And last year, we decided to do a white paper on upward mobility and to identify training that SLAs and blind entrepreneurs identified as being really impactful. And what was the upward mobility training that you as entrepreneurs had participated in that was most directly applicable to your businesses and helped you improve and strengthen your business and your bottom line? And we polled states, and we polled blind vendors, and I joined a conference call of elected committee chairs to try to get suggestions and information, and literally nobody was able to point to upward mobility training that they had offered or participated in that they could illustrate with data made a difference to folks' bottom line and to their business. And I think that's a huge gap, don't you? And now with the site visits and RSA um, looking at plans that are submitted by states, this is an area that RSA is starting to look at more carefully. So NCSAB and others may be coming to you both to ask you about training that you have found to be particularly impactful and how you know, and maybe to get suggestions if there's training that you think would be really helpful that you haven't been offered, what would make a difference to your job and your bottom line? So my bottom line is that with a heck of a lot of work, including work being done by a lot of people in this room, Randolph Shepard, from a federal policy perspective, is in a pretty good place. I wish that I could say with 100% honesty that I feel like the Randolph Shepard program overall is also in really good shape. But it pains me to know that at one point we had more than 5,000 blind vendors across the country and to hear the commissioner say that in 2017 we had fewer than 1,800 blind vendors and to know that when we get updated numbers, those numbers are actually likely to fall. And when you're the commissioner and you've waited 500 days to be put in your job and you know that you have only a year to make a quick turnaround, you start thinking about legacies really fast. Because he doesn't have a lot of time 
to make an impact on a program like Randolph Shepard. But there are a lot of people in this room who have a lot of time to make a difference in Randolph Shepard. And I hope that working together, our collective legacy will not just be the families supported, the homes bought, the children sent to college through Randolph Shepard because of your work as entrepreneurs. I hope collectively our legacy is going to be a bigger, better, stronger, more powerful Randolph Shepard for your children and your children's children. Thank you. We'll take a few questions. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I can bring out a microphone if there's questions. Any questions for Katrina? We'll have a couple of quick, quick questions and we'll be breaking for lunch. Artist says we're doing door prizes. So I am, I'm not only standing between you and lunch, I'm standing between you and door prizes. It's my, my turn to win. <laughs> Any questions? Get your get your hand up if you've got a question. I'll bring you the microphone. All right, everybody's hungry. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank thank you, Katrina. That is just excellent. And I really hope you act next year and give us the good news that DOT is still safe. Our west areas are safe. Every you know. Keep our fingers and our toes crossed in it. Okay, we'll break for lunch and uh, back here at what, 1.30, Scott? Yes. Uh, we do have a couple door prizes, so if we could just get folks to hang on for just a couple minutes. We get all the S all um, bureau staff, SLA staff, will meet outside the door here off to the left, and uh, we'll be, Issa will be bringing you up to the... Uh, RCA suite uh, for working pizza lunch. Okay, the first uh, prize is going to be a box from Louisiana. has lots of cheeses and, you know, different things in it. And the name is... Oh, Scott Johnson. I think he's not here. He had the flu. <laughs> Kathleen Fujimoto from Hawaii. Is she here? Is Kathleen here? Okay, I have cash here along with a little um, heart box of, of chocolates. Albert Travers. Okay, Albert Travers, are you here? Okay. Okay, got that for him. The next one is a uh, cast drawing and a large print calendar planner. 
Come on, I want the cash. What do you say, Brian? Give me the cash. Give me the cash. <laughs> Though that, what was it, Louisiana thing wasn't a bad idea. Either. Yeah, that wasn't wasn't too bad. I, I want to see the heart shaped heart shaped chocolates myself. Yeah. I know I'm not getting any this year. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't happening, Chester. Charles Pickett. Oh, Charles hey, Pickett. Everybody, you've been listening to ACB Radio live event, okay. and we are going to be just cranking up the music, and Brian and I are going to go, uh, go take a little bit of a respite here. Uh, we'll be back to you about one thirty. Okay, another cash prize. To continue the program till 4 o'clock this afternoon. So please come back and join us again here on ACB Radio. Janice Thank Foster. you so much for your support of ACB Radio. Janice I hope you've Foster. enjoyed the program this morning. I think they've had a very, very strong program this yell? morning. Very, no? very, okay. very, very interesting program. And, I think uh, it's been incredibly strong. Yeah. You know, been... I've sat through a number of commissioner Robert, presentations Robert here over the years. Okay. And would scratch my head at the end okay. saying, what did they say? Yeah, no. This, but that was not the case with Mark today. No, the, this was very, very when good. When he didn't so. know the answer. James Carter. He acknowledged that and James uh, Carter, made commitments to get back to people. Great. Uh, he could point at very wow, specific things going on. So that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And, of course, our last presenter, Katrina. Yeah, she, she, she's, she is right, an uh, She's I'd hire her in a moment. Yeah, she's always amazing. Well, anyways, Brian and I are going to uh, just say adios for now, and we'll be back about 1.30 here at ACB Radio Live Event. In the meantime, enjoy some Andre Louis music, which is the theme of all the broadcasts that, uh, that I do here at ACB Radio Live Event. So have a good listen. Uh, have a good lunch. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see you in a little bit. Bye now.
Good afternoon, everybody. It's about 1.30, local Vegas, and we're getting ready here to ready here to resume the Sagebrush Conference for the afternoon. It's going to go until about 4 o'clock before they break for breakout sessions today, so our broadcast will go till 4 o'clock. And if the afternoon's anything like the morning, it's going to be extremely good. I, I think they had a very, very strong showing this morning, so I hope we all hope you enjoyed that. So you're listening to ACB Radio Live Event. My name is Rick Morin, and I'm here with Brian Charlson, who uh, hasn't quite made it down yet. We uh, <laughs> we we went up to our room. We went over and Chick Fil A, and we got ourselves some Chick Fil A, and I got myself a vanilla shake, and I just barely made it back down here um, a couple minutes ago. But uh, very very good stuff. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Up oh, here we go. We're ready to start our afternoon session. I'm Donna Seliger, and I'm the moderator for this afternoon. I would like to start by uh, telling you my life story. I was born on November 29th in a, on a snowy day in Iowa. I think you've heard enough. The uh, uh, artist is here, and she's got some door prizes. Door prizes. Okay, um, the first one is going to be cash and, and a um, large print calendar planner. Okay, can somebody read the name? Dennis Chambers. Is Dennis Chambers in the room? Okay, great. Does somebody want to be a runner? Okay. Okay. Okay, the second one is cash. Matthew Stoll. And I'll do one more uh, cash prize now. Terry Camerdale. Okay. The first item on our agenda this afternoon is um, the pre uh, presentation by Bill Powers. He's the newly elected president of the Nevada Council of the Blind. Please welcome.
Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, can you all hear me? Yes, if you can't hear me, please let me know. Um, well, this was an eventful day of getting up here to the meeting. Um, Lyft let me down for the first time uh, since I started using it. I wasted waiting for a ride, for a ride, and uh, well, thankfully here I still am, but it was a, a lot of mechanics. At any rate, um, um, I am glad to see all of you here and to be a part of this year's uh, Sagebrush meeting. You know, you guys have been for what is it for what has it been 50 some odd years you show that you are a can-do group and we're proud to have you as a part of ACB you do what you sought after you had an idea you wanted to be enterprising and make a living for yourselves you want to tell people, show people you that you do something. You don't just sit around and waste time. Now, like, we, we all reflect in the way that other people see us and in the way we project out. It's, you know, I have a bald head, and I reflect light, so there should be plenty of warmth in the room here. But we all reflect... What you guys reflect is the positivity, the can-do. You and you have a lot of you have a lot of years left of continuing to do more and more. And we at ACB and we at from the Nevada Council of the Blind salute you all, and we welcome you here to Vegas. Thank you for <clears throat> and enjoying and enjoying our windy weather and also for putting up with my talking. Thank you very much. Uh, Bill brought a door prize from Nevada. It's a Nevada-shaped container with lots of dollars in it, over dollars in it. So I'll let him draw the lucky person. John Hewlett. Is John Hewlett in the room? Okay, he is. Okay, you get the... Container. Now we will hear from Tim Paul, and he is from the automatic merchandising system, and uh, he hails from West Virginia. He will talk to us about technology, innovation, everything, everything new out there. Tim? Appreciate it. Uh, you can probably tell from my accent I'm really not from West Virginia. <laughs> You might guess that. Our company is based in West Virginia. I'm a South Alabama boy, <laughs> so, but that's okay. Um, and uh, five minutes is not a lot of time for technology, but that's okay, too. A couple of things about AMS that uh, we would like to say, though. We do appreciate your business. A lot of the states have bought from us over the years and continue to do so, and we are very grateful and appreciative of that. A couple of things with technology. One of the things that is happening now is more and more vendors are, are using telemetry. They're using pre-kitting and things like that. And the, our control board now 
will allow with certain of the telemetry operations to remove price. So if you're set up with that and you would like to remotely price it, you can of course not use scroll pricing or tab pricing, but you would put push, push selection for price and then you could set prices from a computer remotely, of course. It's going of the things that's going on with technology. There's more and more ways to pay for machines or pay for product in machines now. Most all machines are plug and play with all of those technologies. Okay. Oh, there we go. Now they can hear me to Fremont Street. Maybe I can go out there and have my picture made tonight and make a few extra bucks. <laughs> uh, did you hear me about remote pricing? Okay. The, the second thing I was going to mention is most of the day is plug and play on any of play on any of the credit card readers or any of those things that you choose to use. Chip readers and so forth are becoming more and more prevalent today. That's usually just a part of your credit card readers. And all of that is you can use on just about any machine. And now some of the older machines, if you have machines that are older with older control boards, you may have to upgrade the software or even the control board if it's old enough some of the, for some of the uh, credit card situations that you'll run into. One of the things about credit card reading and with those things, too, is you have to have a good signal. If you're under the mountain and you don't have a good signal, it won't do it. Some of the technology now also requires a signal strong enough for data. So keep that in mind as you're placing things with credit card readers and different methods of payment on your machines. Um, also, the, lastly, I will mention for AMS as part of refrigeration, we have changed some refrigeration stuff so we have machines that are eligible for sale now in states that are much more stringent on new hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon releases and so forth. So we do have that available now. If your state requires that, check with us and we'll, we're sure that we'll, we're shipping you the right things with the right refrigeration systems. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm listening in over here too. Um, again, thank you so much. I don't want to take too much of your time, but thank you for your business. We appreciate it. Come by and see us at the show tomorrow at the AMS booth. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Mission. Excellent. Integrity, that's good. Money, definitely. Anybody else? Oh, somebody over here. Hang on. Here we go. Dedication. Dedication, definitely. Got one over here. Here we go. A, a marketing strategy. Marketing strategy, good.
Okay, number one on my list was purpose. If you don't have a purpose that people can get behind, you're not going to be very successful because you aren't going to get people on board with um, um, assisting in the nonprofit, whether it be membership or whether it be employees, etc. If you don't have a purpose, it's not going to work. And someone already said mission. And along with the purpose, you need to have a mission statement that grabs people. If you don't have something that's really going to grab people, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, Number three on my list was objectives. And someone said goals, and that's kind of the same thing. If you don't have a set of objectives or goals, what you want to accomplish with your organization you're not going to go very far. Now, one thing no one has mentioned is leadership. When you're talking about leadership of a nonprofit, what do you think is uh, most important in the leadership of a nonprofit? Structure. Communication, definitely. What was what was the one? Ambition. I didn't catch that one. Identified as the organization. A person who identifies with the organization. Good. Education. What was that last one? Oh, leading by example. Thanks. Demonstration of... Very good. Uh, One of the things uh, people forget in leadership, sometimes people elect people to leadership of organizations... Uh, because of popularity, they like the person, but they don't necessarily look at the competence of that leadership. And you really need to have uh, competent leadership, people who know what they're doing and can get other people involved in the activity. If you have a leader who is just there because they're popular, they may not have a clue of what they're doing. Um, One of the things when I work with organizations, I always suggest that they have a list of duties for each officer so that each officer knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing in the organization. If everyone does not know what they're supposed to do, things are not going to get accomplished as cleanly and things are not going to get done in the correct way. Someone mentioned communication. It's very important to have communication within and outside your organization. If there's not communication between the individual members and the leadership, a lot of times the members won't stay active in the organization. And if it's a nonprofit with employees, if the employees don't understand the whole goal of the organization, they're not going to be able to follow through properly. 
And of course, communicating outside. You have to have good communication outside your organization. Otherwise, you're not going to get the donations you need. You're not going to be able to get the grants you need because other companies and organizations are not going to give a grant to someone that they've never heard of. If they don't know anything about you, they don't know what you've accomplished in the past or can accomplish in the future, they're not going to get behind you. Uh, one thing that is really important for any nonprofit organization, and actually this could carry through to your businesses as well, is if you don't communicate well with your customers and if you're in a nonprofit group, if you don't communicate well with outsiders, such as you know social media, newsletters, um, email lists, any other communication, you're not going to be successful. One of the things that really needs to happen is good fundraising. Can some of you uh, tell me what kind of strategies you think would be good for fundraising? Hands in the air if somebody wants to share. I didn't catch that. Event base. Oh, event base. Very good. Planning is very important. Social media. Social media. Very good. Membership participation. Other ideas for what's important for fundraising? What was that? I didn't catch it. Oh, goals and objectives. Very good. You need to have a budget for fundraising. If you don't have a budget of what you want to spend the money on, and how much you need to get in order to accomplish it, then you're not going to go very far. And you want to have lots of people participate. And sometimes it's really good to have a specific purpose uh, for a particular fundraiser. A gentleman mentioned uh, having an event. Like, in order for us to accomplish this event, for example, we get sponsors and exhibitors in order to cover some of the costs. And of course, we have a participation fee. But we also do raffles and other things to fundraise so we can put on this conference so people can afford to come. And I think one of the things that sometimes people forget that if they don't have a good a list of objectives to get something accomplished with a fundraiser, they're not going to get there. You have to good, have a timeline, when you need to start the fundraiser. You need to have a list of people you need to help with the fundraiser. And you need to know exactly when things need to be completed. And the more people that help and assist with the fundraiser, the more successful it's going to be. 
you have to decide who is going to accomplish what step. Have any of you had a, a fundraiser in an organization that has not been successful? What has been the biggest problem? The demographic, demographics? Okay. Participation? Okay. I didn't hear that. Sorry. I think understanding and identifying who your actual allies in terms of providing funding for you are, because if you don't, uh, if you hit the wrong group of people, you're just going to fail. That's very true. Can you think of other reasons why fundraisers aren't always successful? I think you hit on the key ones. Oh, someone uh, up here just said leadership. That's true, too. That's why I think it's uh, important to have a clear purpose for it. Uh, people are more likely to give if they I can identify with the purpose. And I think somebody mentioned the right demographics. If you're hitting the right people uh, for the fundraising, you're going to be much more successful than hitting people who don't have a clue about the purpose that you're getting at. Another thing that's real important for nonprofits is to get more people involved. What are some ways to get more people involved? Fabulous prizes. <laughs> that's an important one. Show them how people will benefit. And then oh, the one before, I didn't quite catch it. Get them involved with the Tasker project. Very good. I think one of the things we need to do is find out what different members' interests are. If you find out what members' interests are, then you can give them a task they're much more likely to complete successfully. Because if you give them a task of something that they don't care to do, they're not going to do it well. What is a good way to find out what each people likes to do? Very good. Communication. Survey. Very good.
I think another thing is finding out what projects you could use in your organization and making sure that it's out there to every member about the different projects that you're involved in and asking them to participate in at least one project. And if you have several projects and each one asks for a little assistance, I think you're much more likely to get volunteers. If a volunteer thinks that they have to handle the whole project, they might not feel comfortable with too much to have to do. So you can start them out with just a simple activity first, and then if they follow through, then ask them to do something a little bit more difficult. What's another way to get more volunteers besides just the members? Very good. Having tables at events so you can share about your organization and maybe get some outsiders to enlist to help your organization. That's very good. Advertising. Very good. How about word of mouth? Free advertising, yes, that's PSAs, that's good. I think sometimes we can try to collaborate with other organizations in our neighborhood, whether it be a community organization or like-minded organizations. I know in the blindness community, a lot of times we try to collaborate with Lions Clubs and other groups, and sometimes churches will be involved if the purpose is that you can get volunteers from churches to assist if you have an organization that needs volunteers for like an event or something. The other thing is you can do events with other organizations. Fundraisers particularly, if you do a fundraiser with another organization, then it doesn't just rely on your members uh, to do it. You can work together uh, to work on that uh, fundraiser. Another element that we didn't mention for a good organization is fiscal responsibility. A lot of times people don't want to donate to an organization that they feel hasn't been responsible with their funds in the past. So I think it's really important for us to make sure that as a nonprofit organization, we need to let people know exactly what the funding was spent for, uh, what was done, and the exact budget, and how we met the budget, and that we didn't go over the budget in order to do the fundraiser. The um, either... Fundraising or grants uh, can be part of raising funds. And if you go to other organizations and ask for grants, the first thing they want to know is 
how you spent your money before. They'll look at your 990s annually to check and see what you've done in the past before they'll give a grant to your organization. Organization needs to follow standard accounting practices. How many organizations do you know that have not followed good accounting practices? Have you ever had experience with an organization that uh, didn't do good accounting? Okay, I'm not hearing from anyone. So all of every organization you belong to has always done well. <laughs> So um, you know some people that have not followed good accounting practices. I know one complaint I've heard about um, some nonprofit organizations is that they don't have open board meetings, that they won't allow um, general membership attend any board meetings so that they don't know what's going on, and they aren't willing to um, share what they've done uh, with the members on a consistent basis. What other things would be helpful to know as far as transparency goes? Uh, what th elements of transparency do you think we ought to let people know? Yes. Thank you. It's called GuideStar. Uh, they're an independent nonprofit organization which basically grades 501c3s in the country. Um, uh, in order for us to obtain a nonprofit PayPal account, uh, we were listed on that GuideStar. And uh, you have the opportunity to put up your 99. Uh, the the quarterly or your annual reports, your your board of directors meeting things, uh, and the fact that the IRS uses it to, as part of their process to consider whether or not you're an actual 501c3. Uh, it's it's an avenue that uh, that that we should start looking at more for uh, credibility. Very good. Guide start. Uh, definitely. I know um, they list people about the per on, on there, they list organizations by the percentage that organizations spend on uh, their services compared with the percentage of money that they spend on administration. And that's really important. Another thing more organizations are doing now is keeping track of all the volunteer hours. Um, would you take your phone out in the hall, please? Thank you. If, um, if you keep track of volunteer hours for your organization, you can use those um, as money that your, that your members have spent the time to do, and I don't remember, but the cost is, I think it's around $25 an hour, that you can count in volunteer hours. And if you keep track of that, then it makes it show that your members are actually participating in the work of the organization. And it really helps when you're trying to get grants. 
What else do you think organizations look at before they want to donate or before they want to volunteer? Who else has what? Oh, who else has donated? Okay. I'm not sure if you can share that, but uh, um, I mean, you can obviously share if people sponsor and so forth and they're willing to have their name names listed as, you know, that kind of way, but I don't know if there's another any other ways you can show who's... Would they be looking at how many members are in this group? Oh, that could be definitely how many members are involved. Yeah. The service provided, definitely. How many years the organization has been in business, definitely. How satisfied people were with the services that they received, definitely. What was that? Percentage of profit. Oh, percentage of um, a profit uh, for for the. In other words, if they have a a foundation or a amount of money set aside for future, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, a positive budget versus a negative budget. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, Donna was saying if you're a 501c3, your donations can be tax deductible. Definitely that helps too. Are there any other things that you can think of that would make a nonprofit more successful or more viable in today's world, more relevant? Uh, Dan was just saying when you select your board members, you want to look for affluence and influence. People who can influence others, definitely. Yeah. I know some nonprofits, besides their board of directors, they'll also have a financial um, board, or I forget the correct name, but where they have a group of people that are looking into um, how the organization could do better financially. They might have some business people in that that would help your organization look at outside and how they could work with the outside better. And different organizations call that board different names. Succession planning, that's another definite thing that's necessary. Once your board has served it's time. You don't always want to recycle the same board over and over again. It's good to have new blood and new people to, to assist. And a good succession planning is important for that. And how can you do good succession planning? What's important? Term limits. Term limits. Mentoring, definitely. What's the best way to mentor? Good examples, definitely. Uh, 
Definitely. Getting them involved in projects or helping before you elect them on the board, that way they have a little bit of a sense of what your organization is all about and uh, what's happening. That's definitely important. I think there again it's a, a good thing to have um, some list of duties for the different board members and officers and committee members. If the commit you get a person to chair a committee but you don't tell them what they need to do, uh, then they're really not going to be very successful to do that job. So I think it's really important to have duties for each chair and also uh, things that people can help with before they get on the board. That's, that is so true. I think sometimes people get put on a board by popularity and people don't really think about how much they've been involved and how much they've been assisting in the background. And I think that's very important. Okay, anybody else have any final thoughts about nonprofits? Okay, well, I was kind of thrown into this, so hopefully you learned something. So. <laughs> Karen is listening in on, uh, on the ACB radio station. You know, she's not physically here. She, she is okay, Karen is listening on the radio to what we're doing here, so she can tell me later how bad I did. So, <laughs> Well, thank you all for participating. I appreciate it. Um, I do want to make a couple announcements. Um, the California group is going to get together Wednesday evening, and I, I'm assuming we'll probably do it at the chart house, but just wanted to keep you aware of that. And uh, um, so you'd save Wednesday evening. And the other thing is Jeff Tom is around for questions about the Randolph Shepard. Um, act and program. If you have questions for him, he's our current attorney. And he told me I should give you his phone number. Um, his cell number is 916-995-3967. So if you want to call him and meet with him at any time, you know, feel free to do that. 916 916-995-3967. got a bit of a break in the action here. Okay, I got the mic going again. Okay, this next session is um, interview tips uh, for employees. Uh, one of the things that I think too many employers do when they uh, try to get new employees is they don't remember to uh, have the same interview questions for each employee. And in order to have a, a good, hire the best employee, you really need to have the same application and the same interview questions for each person that you're going to hire. Do, can some of you think of some questions that you should not ask 
in an interview. <laughs> Definitely that's a no-no. <laughs> what other questions should not you ask? Age. And what did the gentleman say? Oh, why did you leave your last job? Well, actually, you can ask that one, but don't expect them to uh, always be very honest about that. <laughs> right, I think the only way you can ask them about if they have a car is if you're hiring them to be a driver. Uh, then you can, you know, ask them if they have a license and ask them if they have insurance, etc. But if they're just coming to your job, yeah, you can't ask them uh, if they have a car. Then you can just ask them, yeah, if they have transportation. Correct. That's correct. Religion or lack thereof, definitely not. Criminal history, right? What was that? I didn't hear it. I said that it would depend on what they're applying for. Some organizations require their background. Well, the, yeah, there are some places you work, you would have to um, have a background check. And then it would be you know, legal to um, you know, ask them for a background check. But I don't think you can ask them specifically what they were arrested for. I think you could just say they have to have background check in order to work in this building. And then they'd have to have that background check. What's that? I didn't hear that. It comes up on the background check. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So if you work in a federal building where they have to have a background check, then obviously you would know, you know what their criminal history is. And so it's legal, to ask, it's legal to ask for a background check if it's required to be in that building. But if it's not required, then I don't think um, you're allowed to do it. So. You could ask him what? Oh, yeah, if, you, if you're hiring a driver, you could ask if they have a valid driver's license because it's necessary for the job. But if, they're not, if there's not a requirement for them to drive, then you would not be able to ask, ask them that. No, you cannot ask them if they have children. No, you cannot ask him a que any questions on sexual orientation. Our medical history, right, correct. Yeah, if, if they have a disability. However, in a lot of those things, if the only time it's relevant is if there's particular job duties that require certain skills. 
And those would come out by giving particular questions about situations or giving them tests. And then you'd find out if they would be able to do those things. And then sometimes a particular disability might show through because they can't do the test well. But, and that's why it's really important to do the same test for everyone, the same questions for everyone, because then you're being fair across the board. <clears throat> Another thing that's real important is if you need someone to stock, repair, um, clean vending machines, you really need to ask them about their uh, past experiences and whether or not they have the uh, flexibility and ability to lift, you know, like 20-pound cases, if they uh, can do multiple bends and stretches. And you can actually ask um, applicants to show what their skills are. So if, in other words, if you want them to be able to um, fill vending machines, you can actually have them show if they are physically capable of lifting things, etc. before you hire them. You can actually ask them uh, to demonstrate. As long as you ask each applicant the same thing. If you have a test, for example, you want to do a math test because you want to know if they can change prices, as long as you have the same math test for every applicant that's fine. And if they don't want to do tests, you can tell them anyone that won't take the tests, then I can take them off the list for being hired. You could also show them how to change prices and then see if they can follow your example. You could ask them to make lists or write responses to questions to find out if they're able to read and write correctly so they can make lists of your products and services in order to be able to fill each vending machine properly. And a lot of times it takes math skills, it takes writing skills in order to be able to follow through. And it's absolutely appropriate for you to ask them to give an example. You can ask them if they've taken sanitation tests, if they've done the serve safe training, or if they've done um, any other sanitation testing, and if they have a certification. If they're going to be involved in any food service uh, preparation, they would need to have those tests. And you can ask them what tests they've had in the past. And if you require certification, you can require them to have that before they work for you. You can also ask them if they have computer skills. If you expect them to be able to use Word, Excel, or any other program, you can ask them what skills they have on the computer. And you can have them demonstrate to show that they actually can use it um, so that you know for sure that they can if it's part of the job. You can ask them if they have experience in supervising other employees, if that's something that you might have them do in the future. 
if you have several employees, you might want one to work with another one, and you might, might want to know about their past experience in that area. You might want to know their experience in customer service. If they've worked with other uh, businesses where they've had to do customer service. And you can ask them specific questions about customer service etiquette. What are some questions that, or examples that you might ask them about how they would react to? What are some things you might ask them? Past experience, yeah. What was that? Education, definitely. What was that? Oh, special training in any particular area, if they've had like uh, vending machine repair, that kind of thing. Or special cooking, baking training, if you have a cafeteria, obviously that would be good. Okay, Donna said, if you're hired for this job, what would your goal be? Okay. You might give them some examples, like one question you could ask is, what would you say if a customer uh, complains about a product? You could ask them that to see what their answer would be. And what's the correct answer? The customer's always right, and even if he's wrong. <laughs> hmm. What was that? Oh, ask for references. Definitely you can ask for references. The only thing you have to be aware of is that you can call the references, and people may not tell you the truth. Or they might just say they're okay or whatever, because unfortunately we live in a, a society of litigation, and if it comes back who they talk to, and if they don't feel you hired them because of an insufficient reason, they could get back at you. So sometimes uh, you can ask for references just because, you know, they can put them down. And sometimes you can tell uh, when you call a reference, and they say they were okay, you can sometimes tell by the tone of their voice <laughs> if they were really okay or not. <laughs> Ar artist? Uh, um, just a second, Joni's talking. What'd you say? Would you hire him again? Okay, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, in the past, I, all closed-end questions I put on the application, on the written application, and I saved the interview process for all open-end questions. What, is, what are your thoughts on that? There should be more um, closed-end questions on the interview process or keep it all open-end? Yeah, I think open-ended is always good. Let them say why, right? That's good. 
I can't hear you. Um, can you speak up a little louder? Or somebody bring the microphone back? Okay, go ahead. and whatever and I was wondering if you could actually ask somebody to do that without hiring them first you know just have them go and demonstrate what they can do behind the grill uh, could you repeat that because we can't hear okay uh, I was wondering like if if I was to hire somebody as a grill cook before I hire them, can I ask them to go behind the grill and, like, let's say, fix me some eggs or fix me a hamburger or fix me a Philly or something like that, just so, you know, they can tell me that they know how to do all that, but can I make them show me how to do it? Certainly, as long as you ask each applicant that you interview um, to do that. You can't pick and choose. I mean, if there's somebody that you don't like that well, so you want to rule them out and you ask them to do that, but you don't ask the rest to do it, then it's not fair. As long as you do the same thing for each uh, person, there's, there's not a problem with doing that. Yeah, I don't, you cannot ask political affiliations, but obviously if you choose to, you could look at their Facebook accounts, and if you don't like their attitudes, you know, that's one way of, you know, um, doing it behind the scenes. Yes? Most people let you know during the beginning of the inventory process that they will be looking into your social media accounts, especially if you're applying for a management-type job. Definitely. So you should be careful what you post on social media. That doesn't mean you can't post political things, but you need to post them respectfully so people don't look at it and say, well, that's a really negative, nasty person, regardless of which way they you know, uh, look at it. Another question you could ask somebody, what would you do if you saw another employee steal a product? You could also ask them, uh, what if you saw another employee not do his job well? Um, those are the kind of questions that would make th that person have to stop and think about it. And you can judge their answer based on what your feelings are about that. Can you think of other appropriate questions you could ask? <laughs> what was that? I didn't catch that last one. About going on the phone on there with the, without it being a break, yeah, definitely. And those are the kind of things you can tell in an uh, interview too. You could tell them, "Hey, we only allow uh, smoke breaks, 
and um, phone call privileges just during your 15-minute break. You cannot do it just any time you want to. It's just during that break. And so if you make that clear during your interview process, then they know how you feel on that. And a lot of um, employers now have an employee handbook where they list a lot of their uh, rules that they have. Um, and in that, you can actually put in there what type of clothes you allow, if you allow uh, um, jeans, slacks, etc. And if you don't allow shorts, you don't allow tank tops, um, you don't you know, allow jeans that show <laughs> too much, etc. And if you make it clear what your policies are in a handbook and they have to sign off on it, then it's very clear. And on a lot of those points that you just mentioned, you could put those in a handbook and make sure that they're aware of all your policies before they start the job. And if they sign off on it, then if you get after them later for not listening, then you have a lot more leverage than if you've never told them and all of a sudden you want to put that in place. Another thing you might want to ask is if they're okay with a changing schedule. Like, for example, if there might be busier times and less busy times, so you might want them to work some days longer, some days shorter, and find out if they have a flexible uh, time schedule, that if they can do that, if that's a problem. And sometimes you can hire students, and if you can allow a flexible schedule, you might get a really a good employee if you allow them to have a flexible schedule because they'll work a lot harder because you allowed that. So that's something you can consider. If you're in vending, sometimes you can be more flexible with the hours to allow students to work for you. Sometimes they'll work harder and not expect as much pay if you can have a flexible schedule. The other thing that that might answer is you cannot ask them if they have kids, but if you ask them about if they can handle a flexible schedule, you might be able to find out how uh, willing and able they are to, to flex their schedule. And then you might find out you know, things like if they have you know, several kids or whatever, which could be a problem down the road without asking them if they have kids. <laughs> What other questions do you think would be good to ask? One thing I've seen in stores lately is if a cash register doesn't work, people don't know how to make change. And if you're going to have a cash drawer or you're going to have to give change at any point in time, if you sell something while you're filling a machine or whatever, um, you know, maybe your employee might have to know how to make change. That's another test you could give them during the interview, is have them make change. What are other things you should consider on an interview? 
You could ask them how they would handle a rude customer. You might get complaints about a product or service, but you might just get somebody that's just rude. So sometimes that's hard for people to be able to handle without getting upset or angry with them. Another thing you can ask him is, why do you want this job? And if they answer, well, I just need a job, then it's probably someone that might not stay at your job because it might not actually be the type of job they're looking for, but they're willing to take anything until they can find something else. If you're a, a total and you can't actually tell how they're dressed, you might ask another employee or even a, a customer nearby as they're leaving. Just you might ask them how were they dressed, were they, you know, clean, neat, etc. Because sometimes that's helpful to know because it might tell you, you know, even though you have a dress code and you tell them, sometimes knowing how they came to an interview will give you kind of an idea of their attitude about. Dress. Yes, go ahead. I can't hear you. I'm coming, Joni. I'm coming. Here, I'll give you This is probably better. Um, we have a code that we use so that the person doesn't, so I can know right away that um, how the person looks. And, and um, it, we say if the person looks really good and is dressed nicely, we say, oh, it's a sunny day. Or if it doesn't look good at all, it looks like it came from the homeless camp, then the, um, either the security guard, they escort them in, or one of my employees, they'll say, it looks like it's going to rain outside. So it just helps to do that because you don't know who's going to hear what. Another way I was thinking you inquire to see how many children do they have, because sometimes you know they, you know, have children like can have be out a lot and have the sickness and little kids and things of that sort. Did everyone hear that? Okay. Sometimes if you want to be sure that they're all uh, dressed decent, you can actually provide uniforms and expect them to wear uniforms. And then you don't have to worry about what they're going to wear because they have the uniform they have to wear. Although then it might be, do they launder it often enough? <laughs> The most important things is when you're judging uh, the interviews and the answers to questions, etc. you should have a criteria ahead of time that you can follow so when you're judging each one later at the end, you're fair on your list. You might have uh, check marks for was the person courteous when he answered the questions? 
Uh, was he thorough? Did he understand what the questions were? Um, were his answers appropriate? Um, was he respectful? Did he follow directions? He, she followed directions? Um, let's see. What else do I have here? But I think the big, the big thing is communication. Uh, the communication methods of the employees or prospective employees has to be something that you can deal with. If you can understand them and you feel that they can understand you, that's probably the most important thing. Because if they'll, they can follow your directions in the tests and in the questions you ask, then they're probably going to be much more likely to be able to follow your directions when they're working for you. And an honest critique is very important. And it has to be based on the exercises, the answers, the questions that you've asked them, and the application. And as long as you are evaluating it the same for each employee, then you're going to be a fair employee and you're going to have a fair critique. And I think that's what is the most important because you want to be fair to everyone and hire the best person that works with you so that they're going to feel like they want to stay on the job with you a long time. And as long as you compare all the answers in the same manner, you won't have any problems. Is there anything else I've missed? Okay, well, thank you. We do have a few door prizes before break. Mark Allen Erickson. Mark Allen, is he in the room? Okay. Donna Seliger, well, I guess she's here. <laughs> our uh, final presenter this afternoon. Oops, sorry. There you go. Our final presenter this afternoon is Ted Drake, and uh, he's going to tell us about QuickBooks. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Let me open up my computer for a second. I want to thank uh, everybody for inviting me to come in and talk a little bit longer about QuickBooks. But first, it's uh, 3.18. And I don't know if you remember what Katrina asked us to do. Uh, she reminded us that right now her daughter is playing her first varsity uh, basketball game. And she wants us to yell, Go Panthers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So at the count of three, at the count of three, let's yell go Panthers loud enough that she can hear it at her basketball game. Okay. One, two, three. Go Panthers! <laughs> so <clears throat> my name is Ted Drake, and uh, I am the global accessibility leader for Intuit. Uh, I've been coming here for many years uh, to talk 
to people uh, about what, how do you run your businesses and how can we learn more from you? Uh, I'm not here to sell QuickBooks, but I'm here to answer any questions you may have. Um, I'm not a product person. I'm the accessibility guy. Also with me is Dan Brown. He's with T-Sheets. It's a section of Intuit that does time tracking and attendance. So if you have any questions about how you keep track of your employees, uh, he's also someone that can talk to you about it. So I was asked to come in and talk about QuickBooks reports and how that might work with the RSVA. Um, so my goals today is to kind of give you an update on QuickBooks Online in case you have tried it in the past or you haven't tried it and you want to know how accessible it is. What's the difference between our desktop and online? Because that's also been a question that's come up many times over the years. And importing data, because you can't have good reports without good data. So a little bit of information about how you can import uh, data from spreadsheets and from uh, your uh, te telemetry from your uh, vending machines and from your cash registers. And then I'll talk about how reports work within QBO. And uh, finally, I have an offer for free QBO for anybody that's interested for a year. Also, people had some stories this morning, some kind of jokes and stories. I did want to share one story. One of the earlier uh, speakers was talking about orientation and learning how to use the cane and how to be independent. And from what I understand, I'm not a cane user, but in America, there's typically four patterns that we use with canes, whether it's tapping or swiping and reaching up and down. Uh, I travel to India a lot. And in India, they have 10 different ways to use a cane uh, because they never know what they're going to run into. So let's say that you're going from this casino to the casino across Fremont Street. If you're in India, you might be going on a hard surface. There might be a pothole that's about four feet deep. There might be a cow sitting in front of you. You might be stepping in something that the cow left for you. There might be chickens and dogs. You might be on dirt. You might be in a puddle. You might be in a marshy area. Uh, when you're crossing the street, you can't put your cane out because it might get hit by a bicycle or a car or a motorcycle. So they have a different way of using their canes when they cross. So I went to the National Foundation for the Blind last year. I go there every year to see what they're doing. And uh, someone gave me a demonstration of all 10 ways of using a cane. So orientation may be difficult in America, but it's a completely different story in India, I'll tell you. So every year I would love to come in and say QuickBooks Online is accessible. You can use it today. Over the years I've been sort of saying it's coming soon, it's coming soon. But We've done a tremendous amount of work in the last year. In the last 12 months, uh, it, I can say now that it's accessible. Uh, the amount of work for form inputs, keyboard accessibility, labels for all the buttons and everything, I'm not going to say it's 100% because I'm never going to lie to you. It's not 100%. But now it's the kind where I go to a page and I find which input is missing a label instead of the old days, which is which input actually has a label. Um, so at this point, you can use QuickBooks Online with a screen reader, with JAWS, with NVDA, with VoiceOver. You can use it in Firefox or Chrome or uh, Edge or Internet Explorer. It's going to work pretty well for you. There might be some, some oddities here and there from some of our older pages. But w QuickBooks Online is at a point now uh, where I can say that you can get the job done. And I do have a list of about a dozen people I work with on a regular basis that are blind and are using QuickBooks Online with screen readers. And we're constantly have a feedback loop, so they're telling me uh, this is working for me or this isn't working for me. We worked with one person this year, 
uh, we've closed over 40 bugs based on his feedback. And he had one issue that was particularly hard for him with focus management. And this time last year, it took him 40 minutes to make an invoice. Now it takes him five minutes to make an invoice because we were able to work with what he said and fixed all the bugs that were causing him any problems. That's not just for him. That's anybody. We've essentially made the invoice process. You know what each input represents, and focus is good, and everything's in the keyboard flow. Um, <clears throat> yep, so that's about what I wanted to say about QBO. Now, QuickBooks Desktop is more accessible than QuickBooks Online, but that's because QuickBooks Desktop, we've worked with My Blind Spot, and they have created a series of JAWS scripts. And they also have a series of education materials that are written for screen reader users. So uh, QuickBooks Desktop will give you a much better experience. But I think at this point, what I've been hoping that we get to a point is that you don't buy desktop because it's more accessible. Uh, you buy either QuickBooks Online or desktop if it fits your business. Uh, desktop is great if you have a huge amount of inventory. Desktop is great if you have really complicated uh, reporting structures, sales, maybe some uh, value-added taxes and things like that, because it's a huge program, and it's been around for 30 years, and every year it adds a little bit more functionality. QuickBooks Online, on the other hand, uh, in desktop, the data is stored on your desktop. So if you want to do anything, it's all on your desktop. You export it to Excel, it stays on your desktop, unless you pay for um, you know, cloud storage. QuickBooks Online is all on the cloud. So you can download your data and keep it on your desktop in backups. But what that means is that you can pick up a cell phone or you can pick up your tablet or you can work through the desktop, and it all is seamless. Because it's in the cloud, we can also synchronize better with your Square, with your Stripe, with your uh, vending machine APIs. So there's a lot more dynamic work that goes on with QuickBooks Online. So I would say if you're a small business that doesn't have a huge amount of inventory, you're mostly dealing with uh, service, then QuickBooks Online is probably going to be the one you want. Uh, QuickBooks Desktop is better if you have a lot of inventory. Randolph Shepard vendors, from what I've seen, it's mostly going to be QuickBooks Online. We also have a product. I don't want to talk too fast, but I want to give you some um, time for questions. So if anybody has a question, feel free to ask. I have a mic runner. Uh, Dan is with us. He's from T-Sheets. T-Sheets is a company that we purchased and maybe two, three years ago. Uh, they were actually a partner of ours, and they did such a good job integrating with QuickBooks that uh, the company decided to buy them. And this is a company that allows you to do your time tracking. So this is, you have five employees, how do they clock in, how do they clock out? But there's more going on, for instance, being able to track their geolocation as they're driving around and then automatically checking them into job sites. Um, all of that data gets seamlessly entered into QuickBooks Online, but it can also be used towards your other payroll application. So you don't have to use QuickBooks for the T-Sheets. Most of the T-Sheets customers, they have employees that are cash basis. So maybe it's a day uh, laborer or maybe it's uh, someone that they're, um, uh, they, they pull in a lot of subcontractors and things like that. They've been working a lot on accessibility this year. Um, it's not 100% there yet, but they really have made significant impact on things like making sure it has headings and that it's uh, scalable so you can use larger fonts. 
buttons and form inputs being labeled. But it's definitely a process that we're going through. Any questions about that so far? Yes. What is the processing fee for time tracking? So we have, we have two different SKUs based on the amount of users that you need and also the features that we have. Um, on our website, there's a, the pricing comparison. There's a base fee and then a user fee um, based on the amount of people. So um, some of the uh, project features, uh, geolocation is in our what we call our elite SKU, which is a little bit more. Um, those are for companies that are in that um, a little bit higher grade that needs uh, more extensive. But if you need the more basic fundamental, it's going to be our premium package um, online. I can uh, pull some stuff up and talk. If you'd like, I can show you some different price points there. Yeah, there's another question. Yes. So the question is, is desktop a one-time purchase? The answer is yes and no. <laughs> you can get a subscription based on the desktop. Also, you can buy desktop and you can keep running it for years. However, after it gets to be three or four years old, some of the functionality will no longer last. Like for some, I think the bank, automated bank transactions, you get like a three-year subscription to that as you buy it. The only other thing I would say is if you have QuickBooks Desktop before 2016, you really should update because Microsoft, some of the stuff that powered old QuickBooks, Microsoft deprecated. So we can't guarantee security and privacy updates from Microsoft. So if it's before 2016, I would recommend updating. Uh, plus, every year we make it better uh, from an accessibility standpoint. Every new feature on QuickBooks Desktop has to be accessible before it goes in. Plus, we're always closing uh, the backlog of issues. So the answer is you could buy QuickBooks Desktop 2020 right now and not pay anything until maybe 2023 when you decide to upgrade. So one of the things that we need to talk about with reports, reports are not worth anything if you don't have good data. Uh, if we're only pulling in a small portion of your data, then you're only going to get a small portion of those reports. And QuickBooks and Intuit, our philosophy is that we don't want you entering any data. If, if, if we had a perfect world, you would open up QuickBooks and all that data would be automatically put in, synchronized, and uh, categorized, and checked for uh, verification before you do anything. That's our perfect world. Um, so let me talk about a few of the things that we have going on. QuickBooks automatically synchronizes very easily with your credit card companies, your bank companies, uh, most of your financial institutions. So when you open it up, you sync it with you, you put in your bank credit, and then you, uh, you certify the bank. And then every time you come into QuickBooks, it will give you the transactions. And if the transaction is obvious enough, like if you went to Costco, it's probably going to be supplies, then it's going to categorize it in advance. Uh, then all you have to do is basically say yes, 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 or um, if you think that a category is wrong, then you recategorize it. We also work with a bunch of third parties. So let's say that you're square. Um, if I'm Square and I want to have my customers work with QuickBase, then we have a way that you can program these plugins. And so we have plugins that will help you import directly your information from Square, 
from Stripe, from Clover. Um, someone is asking today about Cash App, but uh, whatever your uh, cash point of sale, um, whatever you're using should have an API, and that API, API, I'm sorry for using terms, API means basically, here's how I've got data, here's how you can get that data in a secure manner. Once we get that data, then we can you know, process it. Um, when we don't have something, then third-party manufacturers are able to create that. So we have a, a pretty robust group of applications that you can use. I did talk to some of the vending manufacturers last year. Um, I don't know if there's any in the room, but many of them said that they already have APIs that are available for QuickBooks. Some of them already have connections so that you can download them. I did find one plugin, which is sort of a generic catch-all. So you, you install that plugin, and then you say, here are my different connections, and it grabs all the connections and downloads them to QuickBooks. That means that you don't have to sit there and keep typing. Uh, we don't want you to have to type all that information by yourself. We also have ways that you can do automated expenses. And I think this is one of the best things. Just because you have sales, you also have expenses, and you don't want to have to keep typing all those things. We have now on QuickBooks, it started in our self-employed, but now if you use the QuickBooks online and use the mobile app, all you have to do is enable mileage tracking. And when you enable mileage tracking, you don't have to do anything else. You just keep the phone with you. When you get into a car, it recognizes that you just started a journey. When you stop the journey, it recognizes that the journey stopped, even if you're not driving. So if you're using Lyft or someone's driving you, it's automatically figuring out that you went on a trip. Now, at the end of the day or at the end of the week, you basically have a set of trips that you went on. And then you just have to say, this is private, this is business, this is business, this is private. It will automatically then take all of your business trips and create them as expenses. And then you can start deducting your mileage without having to do any kind of tracking. And we do it in a really clever way that doesn't kill your battery. So it does a combination of geolocation when you're moving, but are you moving fast enough? When you stop, how long did you stop? So we're not constantly draining your battery in order to do this. We also have receipt capture. So I have a receipt here. I can capture that with my phone. It does work with VoiceOver and TalkBack, so it tells you to get closer or not enough light. So it'll actually tell you when you're ready to take a picture, and then you can snap the picture. After you take a picture of the receipt, it will then analyze the receipt and start inputting some of the information, like the store, the amount, and possibly even the, if it's CVS, it might say, this is a drugstore. Uh, you can go in there, and instead of filling out the entire stuff, you just make sure what's accurate, and then maybe add a category. The auto-categorization is something we've been working on for a long time. If you like the categorization, then you just simply leave it as is. If you don't like the categorization, like let's say you went to Costco to get new tires, and it says that you bought groceries, then you could just simply change the category from groceries to tires. But our goal is that you don't have to do that very much. The other thing that's really interesting about QuickBooks is that we have thousands and thousands of different businesses that use QuickBooks. Your company is unique, but it's not as unique as you think it is. So let's say that, um, let's say you're opening up a coffee cart and you're opening up a coffee cart in Topeka, Kansas. So we're gonna, when you first set up QuickBooks online, it's gonna ask you where are you located, uh, what kind of 
company are you? What kind of sales do you do? Is it cash versus credit card? And then it looks at thousands of other companies around you. What are businesses in Topeka doing? What are coffee carts doing around the company, around the world? What are cash-based companies doing? And then what it does is it sets up a QuickBooks Online that's unique to your business uh, by looking at thousands of other businesses, which means you don't have to sit there and go through 40 screens in order to set up your company. And if you're a primarily cash-based company, then it's going to be more prepared for you than, let's say, you're a lawyer, and most of your stuff comes from billing a client. We also have a new feature, um, and this is really interesting. It's called QuickBooks Live. QuickBooks Live means that we have worked with professional accountants, and you now have a bookkeeper that's uh, dedicated to you. Uh, You're basically working in a gig economy. So it's basically like having an Uber driver, but you have a bookkeeper. This bookkeeper is your project manager. So let's say you want to set up uh, QuickBooks, and you have 10 years of Excel spreadsheets, and you want to be able to set up QuickBooks and bring in all of that information from the past. You can actually use QuickBooks Live. That bookkeeper will be able to take that content and then put it into your new QuickBooks online account, set up all your books, and then work with you over the course of the months so that you understand how to run your book business. And their goal is that by, by helping you understand the bookkeeping part of it, you can spend more time on actually running your business. And one of the things we found is that businesses that succeed are businesses that work with accountants. And businesses that don't succeed typically are trying to do everything by themselves, and they're not getting that professional advice. QuickBooks Live is also a subscription. So if you use it for three months and realize, okay, I'm good now, I can turn off the subscription, you can do that. And then you can start running your books by yourself. So let's talk a little bit about reports with QuickBooks. Um, I think we started six years ago. Uh, Rocky in uh, uh, New Orleans introduced me to uh, RSVA, to the Sagebrush Conference, with a concept of how could we get reports that would help the state agencies. Um, because the state agencies are getting data from all of the different vendors, how could we create some way of a standardized report that that standardized report could go from the state to the federal uh, with the most accuracy and the least amount of work? Um, so we started with QuickBooks Desktop, and we actually ran a project in India to try to figure out how we were going to get this con- these reports done. What we found was that the last person that ever touched the code for creating those reports had left into it you know, five years previous, and nobody knew how to edit that code because it was literally like 15 years old. So we kind of got stuck on that with QuickBooks Desktop. Um, but we have been working on making QuickBooks Online accessible enough so you could use QuickBooks Online because those reports are super flexible, and anybody can go in there and start doing things. The one thing that we... Um, uh, the, I should say that reports... in QuickBooks is nothing more than a set of form inputs to get data, a set of data tables to show the data, and reports. So when you have QuickBooks set up, you can instantly create a... Uh, business uh, summary, something that you can print up, save it as a a Word document or a PDF, and you go to the bank and say, here's my business summary. You don't have to spend weeks trying to figure that out. It's actually published immediately. Or let's say that you wanted a profit and loss statement, or you wanted to know um, sales based on location or sales based on uh, 
inventory is uh, our ramen noodles selling better than Hot Pockets, that kind of thing. So reports are really, really a key part of QuickBooks. Without reports, it's basically the same as Excel or uh, any kind of spreadsheet. The other thing about reports is that you can export reports to Excel. So it's a bi-directional, and everybody knows that Excel is really good for looking at spreadsheets. So use the product that works best for you. If you want to download your profit and loss statement and look at it in Excel, that's easy enough for you to do. You can also look at basic, like profit and loss and bank accounts uh, on your phone. Uh, we have specialized reports that are made for mobile, but you're not going to get the extended report list from that. We do have some payroll reports. So if you're using QuickBooks Payroll, you can also get some information about your employees. Um, for instance, you can get, I've been to Sagebrush enough times, I know some of the conversations we've had in here is about retirement plans, about deductions and contributions, workers' comp, uh, your total payroll costs. You can actually run reports on this through QuickBooks and download those to your Excel, or share them with your accountant, or have a better idea as to where they're going. I think I've counted about 14 reports that are uh, standard within that. And finally, with T-Sheets, if you're a T-Sheets customer, you can run payroll reports, itemized time reports, schedule reports, and approvals, which means it's a report that you can then approve everybody's schedule as listed. Those are also exportable to Excel except for the approval one because that's more like a form. And now I want to talk about how that all fits in with RSVA. So I did talk about how we tried to figure out the forms. Um, I've looked at some RS-15s. Um, to be honest, I haven't been able to access some of the forms directly that might be sent from a vendor to the state agency. Oh, I've got a, a question. Oh, no, maybe not. Um, one thing that we don't have, we don't have information about employees that have a disability. So that's not a report that we can generate. Uh, theoretically, you might be able to put in a memo field or a note field on the employee that they have a disability and then run it that way. But QuickBooks doesn't track um, that form of an employee's uh, status. So that's something that would probably have to be done between the vendor and the state agency. I've looked at all of the features of an RS-15, and all of that information should be easily exportable through uh, QuickBooks Online. What would probably happen is that the state agencies will probably have to look at what they need, create a sample report. Once you create a sample report, you can then export the template and then send that to all the vendors within the state. So it's very easy to create a report that says, here's how we need to know about itemized deductions, or here's how we need to know about uh, equipment. You don't do too much equipment. Um, no. <clears throat> um, but inventory or uh, sales being able to break it down by vending machines versus micro-markets or anything like that. That can all be done. It just might mean that in order to get that information, you have to look at specific parts of the data. And then once you know what you need, you can go back into the data and say, this is what we want. And then the state can export that template to all the QBO customers, and they can just start run running those reports. And then once again, those management reports can automatically be generated to a PDF or to a Word document or to Excel so that the state agencies can use them in the federal. I don't know how much time we have because I know people want to questions. 
Okay, so I have 15 minutes. Um, I can give a demo of maybe a receipt capture, or we could also start taking some questions. Okay, so I'm, I'm using the iOS app. Let me just... From a micromarket kiosk? Uh, no, I haven't tested the migration from a market kiosk yet. Um, that's one of the things that would be nice to be able to talk to some of the micromarket kiosk vendors, uh, the people selling the uh, accounting software, but typically they're going to have data that can be transferred into QuickBooks. The thing is, is data is data. It's a silly thing, but that's how engineers think. Once we get data, we can do whatever we want with data. So it's just a matter of getting that out of your app and into another app. So I'm going to... Uh, Dan's going to come over with the microphone because we can't hear you from back here. I was saying that most of the, I'm only familiar with one kiosk I know a lot about, but most of the kiosks, I believe, their data can be transmitted out of them in, in different, like I, I use Excel a lot, so I download my, a lot of my spreadsheets that I need from my kiosk into Excel, which, and I believe that can be imported into QuickBooks, correct? I would believe so, and also um, Data coming from vending machines that are in prisons, they may have to use a zip drive and export it from uh, directly into the computer. The thing that might be a little bit more difficult is if you have a micro kiosk where, or like a coffee cart where everything is cash sales. Um, that's what I'm trying to do a little bit of research and what's the best way of doing the end of the day cash sales import. Does that answer? I couldn't hear the first part of your question, but does that answer? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Good. Okay. That's good. So what, I, what, what I'm going to show you is just the receipt capture. The receipt capture does work with voiceover, so it tells you when it's in focus or anything like that. Move camera closer. Hold steady. Shutter. Button. Capture it. Hold steady. Cancel. Button. So that's how, even if you couldn't see the screen... Uh, even if you can't see the screen, we're going to be able to present. You can hold the camera in front of your receipt. It will tell you when it's in view, when you need to get closer, when there's not enough light. And when it does detect that it's perfect, then you can touch the uh, shutter button and take a picture. Now what's going to happen is it's going to take that uh, receipt, send it to the cloud, and it's going to do OCR, optical character recognition, to figure out what was the, uh, what was the information on that receipt. And then it creates a transaction and that transaction will then be on your QuickBooks online, and you just have to say, yeah, that's correct, or no, I need to edit it, um, that's incorrect. And you don't have to type everything. You just need to type what needs to be fixed. For instance, I did one earlier, and it got the name of the restaurant, it got the total of the restaurant, but I didn't know the category. Didn't realize it was food. They just left the category as uncategorized. The other thing... Um, I was trying to do um, mileage tracking, 
and I should have done this yesterday, turned it on, but uh, I can show you what the mileage tracking screen looks like. And I'm sorry if I'm using screen reader as the default. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm using the screen reader's way of showing that it's accessible, but I do want you to know if you if you can see the screen, but you need larger fonts, we're we're really starting to implement uh, dynamic type on iOS, so you can increase the font size. On Android, the font size increases as all Android apps do. Uh, we've also been working on color contrast, so we've been working to make sure that our contrast is adequate. And most of the times you're going to be able to have really good color contrast, except uh, some of our green buttons are a little bit low. Do we have any other questions? Anyone? I will uh, see if I can... Um, Okay, so it's not playing now. Live demos are always fun. What I'm trying to do is pull up uh, QuickBooks and go to the mileage tracking. Yes. Can you say that again? Is the cloud service part of QuickBooks, or do we have to set up our own, like Dropbox or those uh, cloud services out there? Did you say mileage tracking? Cloud cloud service? Uh, QuickBooks Online is all cloud-based. Okay. So it's part of the product. So part of the subscription? Yes. Uh, So when you get QuickBooks Online, it's on the cloud. Now... I will say that some companies have multiple locations, multiple bookkeepers. They're on the larger side, and sometimes they pay for their own cloud storage. Um, but I don't think I don't think any the RSVA vendors that I've met. I don't think you're at the kind of complexity that would require that. That might be like uh, someone that owns five or six tire shops, and they have a huge uh, inventory selection kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And is it? Uh Space limited or indefinite? Rate limited? Space? Face limited? Space, like one gigabyte or one, two gigabytes storage space in the cloud? Yeah, here's the problem. I'm I'm not the product person, so I can't always answer questions. And if I do answer, I'm afraid of answering them incorrectly because I don't know all the specifications of pricing and limitations. because you have a cloud account, theoretically, you can also have bookkeepers. You can have someone that owns the company, which is what I've seen a lot of times, people that we have customers that are blind. They have someone that manages the books, but then there's a, uh, someone that's the CEO who might be blind, and they're just looking at the reports. Um, so you have a cloud account. You can have multiple employees coming in. Is that what you're asking? Oh, storage space. I'm sorry. Um, if you were, no, as far as I know, there's no limit on storage space, but you would have to be doing a heck of a lot of receipts. 
um, in order to worry about storage space. There's, there is really no limitation when it comes to QuickBooks. QuickBooks is designed to grow with you. Um, there is a point where you may outgrow QuickBooks, but we have figured that out, and we've given more of the um, QuickBooks advanced options, ones that have given more um, some more bells and whistles as you grow to a larger company. Um, so that's it, it goes it grows with you. Yeah, Lyft um, started on QuickBooks Online, and they wanted to stay with QuickBooks Online, but of course we couldn't handle Lyft. We're not enterprise software; we're small business software. So we started looking at how can we better support people that are moving from small business to let's say 100 to 200 employees. Um, Lyft is still going to use uh, enterprise software. Um, as far as reporting, can reports from credit card readers, so like USA Tech credit card readers, be exported to QuickBooks so that they work together, or do those have to be um, viewed separately? So here's the caveat I have on that. She was asking about can we import a report from, let's say, USA Cash Register, and can that be used interchangeably? As I've said before, data is data, but we need to know what that data is. And if that someone's got to make sure that stuff is imported directly and properly, and as long as that information is imported properly, it can be, then be incorporated into QuickBooks. We can run reports in QuickBooks, and we can deliver them back. And if USA Cash Register is ready to accept reports from QuickBooks, then they can then uh, take that data from QuickBooks and then put that back into their cash register software. Um, that's the beauty about data. We just need to say category, you know, field X is price. And if field X is price for both giver and sender, then everything works really well. Now, I will say, if you're a Square customer, we had created something for Square within QuickBooks, and it's really bad. So there's third-party people that have created better Square categorizations where they can get that data from Square and put it into QuickBooks much better than the one that we created like four years ago. But we're in the process of creating a new one. There are areas in QuickBooks where you can upload information from a CSV, and what will happen is um, the algorithm will look through your categories or your headers and match what it can tell it is. And the ones that it's not sure about, it will ask you, what does that mean or what is the equivalent? And that will help solve a lot of the, uh, the compatibility issues between um, spreadsheets. Now, also, um, how many people in here know about the IRA program with Intuit? So we only have a few people in here. One of the things that you need to know is that we started partnering with IRA. IRA is the uh, artificial intelligence remote agent software that allows you to use your phone or a set of glasses, and someone else is going to be looking through your phone and helping you give you remote um, sighted assistance. They can also use that app in order to go into your computer, and they can do things like click on a button that doesn't work. Uh, Intuit, our mission is to power prosperity. I'm here because I want to help you guys build your businesses and do better. And by listening to you, I'm able to go back to our company, go back to developers, and we can fix things and make them better. That's my whole purpose for being here. With Ira, if you're a blind or low vision small business owner, or if you're a self-employed blind or low vision person, you can use Ira for free doing business tasks, and we pay for it. It does not have to be QuickBooks oriented. So if you're getting a report from your cash register and it's coming in as a PDF and you can't read that PDF, you can use the IRA app and you can have the IRA app 
uh, agent read that report for you. If you're doing inventory, you can do that. Uh, it's worked really well um, for doing inventory, for reading documentation, for signing contracts, uh, for checking to see if your, uh, your micro market is clean, uh, if you want to sneak up on your employees and make sure that they're doing things correctly. <laughs> She's laughing because that's what she told me last year. <laughs> uh, so yeah, IRA, all you have to do is open up the IRA app and look for free uh, promotions, and you'll see the Intuit Small Business promotion in there. And if you need help with one of our products, you can also look for the QuickBooks online, and they'll be happy to give you the cited assistance you need with our products. Anybody else have any questions? Uh, this is a question kind of about IRA, and it might be more of a question for them rather than QuickBooks, but since you mentioned them, would, um, since taking meter readings on a machine and those reports is sometimes a tool that we utilize to uh, confirm sales, would IRA um, be able to assist with that virtually? When you say meter readings, can you explain meter readings? Um, on a vending machine, the meter readings calculate the sales that go through the machine, and so on the display, you can determine uh, the sales that have gone through that machine, but for people who are blind or visually impaired, it can often be very difficult to capture that effectively, especially when you have a machine where the display scrolls okay. rather than uh, showing a stationary display. So there's two things that an IRA agent can do for you. The first one is if the display is reading something, they can take a picture of it. So they'll ask you to hold up your camera, and they'll take a picture of it, because that way they can then blow up the picture and look at it better. You can ask them to save the picture, and then what they do is they create a folder for you, and then you can access that picture later. They can send it to you. Or if the screen is scrolling, they can read it while it's scrolling for you. Um, but then you obviously won't get the picture afterwards. Now, I will say that Be My Eyes is also an excellent app. We use IRA because IRA has the built-in privacy and security. Um, and that's important to us. If you call IRA and you ask for help, I have no idea what you're calling for. We don't ask for that information. They don't give it to us. They might tell us, we get information like there were 500 calls, 40 of them were about reading websites, 30 of them were for research. It's that kind of thing. That's all we get from them. We're not doing it for any kind of market research. We're just trying to help you uh, power your businesses. So they can do that. It just depends. When you said scrolling, that might be a little bit more difficult than if it was static. Did you? Uh, the um, the meter readings go pretty fast, and so that you know they're not there for very long, and you have a, that's the hard part. The other thing, if you're interested, let's say that you're doing a. Um, uh, a job interview or something like that, and you're worried about IRA saving it, you could also ask the agent to not save anything. Because they do, they do save video just for their own customer quality. Uh, but if you ever want them to not save anything, just tell the agent, don't, don't save the recording 
don't save any pictures and they'll delete them. Any other questions? I'm going to be here all week until Friday. Uh, Dan will be here tomorrow, and tomorrow we'll also be in the trade show. So if you have any questions, we're happy to talk to you in the trade show. We're also very interested in talking to people individually, learning about your story. And if you would like a free one-year subscription to QuickBooks Online, uh, come up to us and we'll send you the link that you can get that immediately. And I will say this one-year subscription, this isn't normal. I actually had to work really hard to get this. We don't often give out a free one-year subscription. Uh, But I told them I was coming to this conference, so they gave me them. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. I wish the technology had been here 30, 40 years ago. Even five years ago. Even five. Yeah. You got it. Okay. Thank you, Ted. It's really a pleasure to have you back here again. And uh, as a small token of our appreciation for sponsoring our Sagebrush, we have a plaque for you. Great. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And again, I'd like to emphasize that Ted is probably the most knowledgeable person about all aspects of accessibility. And um, I'm going to offer your services that, you know, if you need a private tutoring session while you're here, Ted will, will probably make himself available. So just uh, get a hold of Ted or, you know, we'll track him down and help you track him down because, like I say, he'll be here till Friday and uh you know, just a, a wealth of information on accessibility uh, with all Intuit products as well as other issues. Thank you, Ted. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Okay, the, the ending code for this afternoon's session is 4ADB6. And I have three door prizes, so if people want to leave. <laughs> okay, the first one is um, $25 gift card for Starbucks um, from Mark Breen and Associates Advisors. He couldn't come this year, but he donated some gift certificates. His wife had degrees, so he wasn't able to. Sure, it's four A D B six. Thank you. Rena Mason. Is Rena Mason in the room? Okay. She's out of luck. Norman Oda. Norman Oda. Okay, I have another gift certificate from Mark Breen and Associates and Cash. There's Norman's. Anitha Brown. 
Anitha Brown. Jennifer Chambers. Jennifer Chambers. Constance Zanger. Constance is here, okay. And then I have one more cash one. Charleston. Well, I bet you he's here. Okay. Here you go. Here you go. He's not here? Nope. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you get them both. Yeah. Mm hmm. Boy, he lucked out, didn't he? I think we ought to look around and have that. He's been, he's been, he's been, he's been, Okay, we're going to give that one to Brian. Thanks. Okay, then we have uh, free br three breakout sessions. Um, Scott, you want to tell where the three breakouts are? Um, they, there's one for committee chairs, one for uh, BEP staff, and there's one for anyone interested in learning more about uh, Rendell Shepherd Vendors of America and advocacy. Um, the vendors, uh, Randolph Shepard RSVA, will meet in, in this room. You see, and right across the hall, there's two rooms, uh, and we can have the SLA in one and the committee chairs in the other. So just step out the side door and go across, and uh, let's have the one as you walk out the door. The one to the left be the SLA, and the one to the right be the elected committees. Thank you all for being here and hope that we were able to provide some valuable information. And I, I sure have learned a lot today. And uh, let's, we'll have a report on the breakout sessions later in the week. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that wraps up for today. And uh, like, I, like they said, they're going into breakout sessions. So we will uh, wrap up our broadcast day here at the Sagebrush Conference, official day one.